Are we ready? Yeah. So have you read your other omnibus? Because what did I buy? The Invisibles, Batman. The Invisibles of Batman and Robin. 52, Infinite Crisis. I bought myself Infinite Crisis. Well, but you got a yeah. bunch for Christmas. And Absolute Final Crisis. Have you read them all then? No. Just uh, 52. Because I'm tempted by Infinite Crisis. I'm, re- I'm reading... Well, I've just read them for Christmas, but I'm reading them all in order. You're so anal. <laughs> <laughs> I have to read them all in order. Well, I yeah. have to read them in the order that they were published. And that issue of Aquaman takes place in the middle of this issue of Batman. So between pages 11 and 12, I have to read it there. Right, that was the best way to read that to Batman, all right? He did as well. I may put this at the end of the show as an outkick, but Michael arranged Night of Owls in the order that page it took by place. Page. But no issue, he arranged it page <laughs> by page. <laughs> So if we had to read an issue of Batman and Robin, and then there was a page from Red Hood and the Outlaws that took place in the middle of Batman and Robin, he went and read that page of Red Hood and the Outlaws, and then went back to Batman and Robin. I was reading like five issues at the same time at one point. You just don't do non-linear, do you? So why do you like Grant Morrison so much? Because He's the definition of non The whole of is non-linear storytelling. <laughs> But no, the, whole, the whole point of reading this the way I'm doing is because of Batman R.I.P. <laughs> that relies on a lot of things that happened in 52. But before so I read 52, I have to have read Infinite Crisis. Yeah, okay. Because I asked him to get them in order for me when I was reading... Um, was it Nightly Hours? And you made you a list of what... And he made me a list of pages. And I just chucked that out of the window and just read the issues in the order that he'd given me. <laughs> But he actually had pages 1 to 11 and then he put the next of pages 4 to it. I don't know! But this one panel takes place. <laughs> Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite which drains Superman of his powers. Wrong, the gold kryptonite's power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird. Guys, reality. Besides, I can just tell something's wrong. My spider sense is tingling. Your spider sense? Oh, stay behind and put around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, oh, no, I don't know Alfred, so no, you forget Alfred had a job. But gee, Mr. White, if Clark and Lois get all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Jimmy Olsen jokes are pretty much going to be lost. Sorry. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey, Kiss Comics! Hello, lovely people. Hello, there. Was that all you doing tonight? Well, just a, a hello, there. Well, you didn't give me much of a... <laughs> you were, he was just necking some Pepsi Max. Well, no, I meant usually hello, everybody, hello, everybody. Oh, okay, hello, everybody. Well, hello, everyone. And welcome back to Hey, Kids Comics, part six yes. of our celebration of the Man of Steel's 75th birthday. Only two more to go. Mm-hmm. After this, what are, what are we quick. doing after this? No idea. We've not got a clue. <laughs> Let's finish off Troika. That's not a bad idea. We could finish off Troika, and uh, there's some people have emailed in with suggestions, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. One of which we will be discussing later on. Uh, preamble. I don't think I have any this week. Oh, I did another two who freaks, true who freaks, two who freaks, something like that. that um, works. Yeah, that works. Um, our month, year-long, sorry, celebration of Doctor Who's 50th birthday over on the Two True Freaks Network. As usual, this was cheered and hosted by the ever-wonderful Mr. Sean Engel. I was on it, but don't let that put you off. Uh, along with Hope Mullinex and the lovely Dave Walker. 
who I got to speak to twice in three days, mm-hmm. which was great. And uh, her metal hero himself, Chris Tyler, was on with us. Okay. So I don't know when that's dropping. We were discussing the David Tennant episode, Partners in Crime, which was the first proper episode with Donna in it. So that'll be dropping soon. It's well worth listening to, because uh, I've already heard it, obviously. Because that was the... Yeah. When it was recorded. Uh, Fantastic Cast has had a couple of excellent visitors recently, so you need to uh, listen to that. Professor Allen was the most recent one, as was the aforementioned Dave Walker. An actual professor. An actual professor, yeah. That's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and this may be premature, yeah. but you, you are yeah. going to go out into the, the podcast sphere. On The training wheels are off. Mm-hmm. Michael's going out on his own. Got two more now on my own. Mm-hmm. He's in talks. Yeah. The contracts have been negotiated, <laughs> haven't they? Because Michael doesn't come cheap. This has to be said. Oh, not at all. No, 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 no. You're very expensive, aren't you? Mm. And much more expensive than me. I'll go anywhere. <laughs> I'll talk to anybody. But there are a certain criteria that Michael that has to be met yep. for Michael to be on Everything your show. Has to be very specific. Only blue M and M's. Yeah. I believe is this is the criteria. Only Pepsi Max. Yeah. That's all you'll drink, yep. isn't it? Yeah. Any is there any other demands that that you specifically require other than paying in cash? Obviously. Yeah. In advance. Yeah, he doesn't accept checks, he doesn't accept PayPal. No. Um, so he's in negotiations. The, the lawyers of the DiMonzo Corporation mm-hmm. are talking. The hookers yeah, are, into and are, are discussing with the lawyers of the Views from the Long Box podcast, Was which it? I believe is also a product of the DiMonzo Corporation. Yeah. Uh, so those two lawyers, because it's different divisions, so it's not simply a case of you get invited on the show. No, 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 no. Mike Bailey has had to call his people that have then had to call our representatives that have then had to get in touch with you. Michael and Michael are not allowed to talk to each other before the event happens, are you? This is in the contract that we signed in blood. So Michael is in talks with his lawyers who are in talks with Michael Bailey's lawyers for Michael to guest appear on a future episode of Views from the Long Box. Over Skype, because our lawyers have said that we can't meet face-to-face. No, that the universe... Yeah. would crumble the internet would split the internet up. would split it, well it may get a hairline fracture yeah possibly so look forward to that I'm not yeah. going to tell you what they're discussing yet because mm-hmm. let's let's tease something but also also Michael and Scott Gardner the younger yeah Mr. Scotty Gardner are doing another Two True Freaks the next generation we are uh, this time, however, you, you lovely listener, <laughs> get to participate in a fully, what's it called? Interactive. Mm. A fully interactive young person experience. Might not be that interactive. Why not? Or we're recording next week from recording this. So, they've still got time to be I fully interactive. This goes up in two weeks. A fully interactive... That's a very good point. <laughs> A fully interactive <laughs> podcast has already taken place in which Michael and Scotty Gardner, Gardner the Younger, yep. um, answered questions that from the you forum. You might or might not have asked. Yes, that you might or might not have already posted. <laughs> oh, fire up the DeLorean, Marty. Yeah. <laughs> um, forum questions uh, from us the listener mm-hmm. to them so if there's ever a burning question that you wanted to or have already asked Michael <laughs> keep it clean because both of them are under 18 oh don't keep it clean because because we won't be there to stop it happening yeah. so whatever so there you go Michael's taking off the trading wheels and going his own way 
I think that's pretty much it, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I watched Dread this week. Did you? Yeah, it was great. Okay. Really enjoyed it. Okay. Pissed all over the uh, Stallone one. Did it? I mean, it's not difficult. Did it have the gun that talks to him? It did not have the gun that talks to him. That's the only thing I remember no. from that movie. It did have Judge Anderson in it. I always quite fancied okay. Judge Anderson as a kid. Did, did you? Yeah. And Lena Headey was in it, which is always nice. Okay. And it was very, very gory. Which well, was great. You want to just dread movies to be very. Yeah, good. yeah, you don't want a pussy PG Judge Dredd movie. <laughs> oh, none of that filth. Judge Dredd the U. 18 all the way. Did they not cut it to allow it? No, they did, they did not pussy out and cut it for a PG rating. Thanks, Fox. <laughs> uh, but also, never let it be said our lovely listeners do not rise to the challenge when given one. Mm-hmm. For. A few episodes ago, was it two episodes ago? Yeah, it was at this point. A few episodes ago. I I put out, though, that we didn't think it would be possible mm-hmm. for somebody to listen to an episode that we upload on the Thursday mm-hmm. to get us an email to by Thursday night Thursday. for us to record. Mm-hmm. Today, episode four, yeah, not only did Happy Birthday Superman went up. Exact amount, you Michael. Mm-hmm. Do you wish to tell the listeners? Not one! But four. Not two, but... Four. No. Three. Three three people managed to get an email about the episode we posted today. So the very first email that came in at 15.28 was from Robert Ludwig. It's called Same Day Email. Mm -hmm. Howdy, Andrew and son. Did I make it? See? See? Excellent. Well done, Robert. I am writing from work while listening to week four of Happy Birthday Superman. Since you stated for the second week you wanted to see if someone could get an email to you on the same day, I had to try. Anyway, still really enjoying the show. As for the greetings, since I always seem to misspell Michael's name, I wanted to avoid it. (laughs) (laughs) Loved the Dukes of Hazard theme song. I I thoroughly enjoyed doing it. That could be our theme song, couldn't it? It could. Michael missed out on making it epic by not singing... Well... Full disclosure, Michael wasn't actually in the room while I was doing it. I'm sure I was singing. You joined in at the end and did the yee-haw. Yeah. Because editorially, that took place while we were on our break. Yeah. And then I cut it off and made it the pre-credits bit, because I thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone else found it funny. Well, but apparently. Me and Robert Ludwig enjoyed it. Yeah. So, as far as I'm concerned, job done. So Michael wasn't actually there while I was doing it. Originally, I was just surfing on the internet where Michael was getting his drink and his chocolate biscuits, as is the, as the standard yeah. break time feasting was going on. Mm-hmm. And I was just singing to myself why Angela was showing me stuff. And then it just ended up becoming the whole thing. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. My son, five, does not know the name of the show, but knows the orange car. Everybody knows the general lady. Yep. We watch YouTube videos of it. Although not many, as he's obsessed with Star Wars, and we watch a lot of Lego Star Wars items people have put up. By chance, we're visiting Disney World, and hopefully Scott Gardner, on the last of the Star Wars weekends. Ooh, awesome! We've been to a Star Wars weekend, haven't we? we? Have. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I would love to go to Star Wars weekend with Scott. Because Scott was... He was very giddy, wasn't he? Was, he? It yeah. was like going around Disneyland with another child. Yeah. It was brilliant. But he, but he ruined all those... Yeah, he ruined all the childish magic behind it. See that though, lightning rod, rod. lightning rod, and then we could not spot the lightning rod. (laughs) Brilliant! Uh, It was not planned that way; it just happened. I'm sure both of us will love it. Yes, you will. Star Wars weekends are awesome. Anyway, keep up the good work in the '70s room, donated generously by Demanzo Robert. Well, thank you very much. Speaking of Star Wars, I read a few one today of the new Dark Horse series. Yeah, did you like it? 
I enjoyed it. There's nothing much went on, though. Uh, no, I... I liked the art in it, though. Oh, yeah, well, I liked it. Like you, I don't understand why it became the huge phenomenon that it became. There was nothing much happened in it, though. No. And I, I don't understand why it took off as well as it did. Yeah. It's like Dark Horse have produced Star Wars comics before. They've it's produced Star Wars comics that have Luke and Han and Leia in it before. Maybe it's because it came out after Disney bought them. Possibly. That may have had something to do with it. Mm. But it wasn't terrible. No. It's a shame it's took them this long to produce a regular series. Yeah. But whatever. Our next email came in at 15.58 and was by the oft-mentioned Dave Walker. Happy birthday, Superman, which is pretty sharp to the point as uh, the subject headings go. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Dave. Hope y'all are enjoying covering this Superman since I'm enjoying listening to it. Good. We're glad you're enjoying it. Superman is one of my favourite characters. If anyone wants to know who my favourite character is, then you can go and listen to earlier episodes of Hey Kids Comics, now available on the Two True Freaks podcast network, where I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it in previous emails as I really can't be bothered to repeat myself. But you can be bothered to tell us where we can find it. He can be bothered to plug our show. (laughs) Which I I, I would have thought he'd took the opportunity to plug his own show, though. I know, I was thinking he was going to zig. But he plugged ours. Yeah. Which saves us a job, I suppose. The Man of Steel has been an ever-present figure for as long as I can remember. I have vague memories of watching black and white Superman episodes on BBC Two, I think, asking my dad where Superman was while waiting for him to appear in Superman the movie, and even watching the old Superboy series. I even remember one Christmas sneaking away from dinner to make sure I was taping Superman 4. <laughs> the less vague memories are of where exactly I was standing when I found out Superman was dead, watching the new adventures of Superman, renamed since they didn't think we'd get the joke, wondering where the rest of the Superman animated series has gotten to, reading the Man of Steel trade paperback and being disappointed that the library didn't have any more and the first episode of Smallville on a New Year's Eve night just after I got home from work and was preparing for friends showing up. My first vast reading project after I properly got into reading comics was reading all of the super titles in the post-post-crisis on Infinite Earths era that I borrowed from my old friend Tor. Wow, I can ramble. <laughs> Feel free to edit any of this out. I don't really get much of a chance to let people know how much I like this character, which I do. Superman has kind of always been the... I'd also like to second the recommendation for Hell on Earth, a story that I believe the other Dave W. did in his email that came with the excellent message from Lord Darkseid. It's been really good so far, and I'm hoping it doesn't fizzle out at the end. There's also no sign of any giant spiders in the third act, as yet, but Grant Morrison has already kind of dealt with that with the new-look Brainiac. I'm completely unfamiliar with any 70s Superman, with the exception of the stuff Charlie Niemeyer has looked at on Superman in the Bronze Age. Superman fighting fighter jets sounds like it'd be awesome in a movie. The Sand Superman storyline makes me want to see if any of my friends have access to it, and if I have any time, I actually get around to reading it. Oh, by the way, which do you think was better, the Quantum Leap future or the Superman 2001 future? Uh, the Quantum Leap future. Because they had little ID cards that had holograms on them. Okay. Which I thought was quite cute. Quantum Leap took place in 2001. Right. Even though it was filmed in 1989. Okay. So it was a future time. Yeah. Okay. Quantum Leap Accelerator was built at a future point. Right. Which is now the past. Yeah. Which is always cool. And we don't have a Quantum Leap Accelerator. We don't have a Quantum Leap... Well, we may do. We, may. we don't know. It's a top secret military project. We don't know. Yeah. Sat and Beckett could be bouncing around in time even as we speak. He could. Hmm. That, I think, is all for this email. Sorry for the rambling, but looking forward to the decades I know at least a little more about Dave. P.S. Have you been enjoying Castle lately? I've missed out on the last few episodes and it's been a while since I wrote to you all. Yes, I have been enjoying Castle. They have done a very good job of getting the two of them together and not making the show suck. P.P.S. I just realised I'm sending this on one of the days Superman might consider celebrating his birthday on. That's very true, yeah? Hmm? Today may be Superman's birthday. Maybe. His birthday's February 29th, so it's it's either, either or, isn't it? Our final email that came in at 1939... 
just as we sat down to record, was called Happy Birthday Superman 04, and was from Chris Warden. Hello, Chris. Hello, Leyland family. Andrew, Angela, Michael, Adam, and Anya, you are my favourite family of podcasters, and I immensely enjoy every episode. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate that. And I somebody we here, work hard to be we work hard to be the first family of podcasters. Yep. And someone here wants to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, love. You can go to bed now. Night-night. We're, like night. we're like the Fantastic Five of podcasting. We are. I'm writing this email as I listen to the fourth episode of Happy Birthday Superman covering the 70s. I was born in September of 71, so the coverage of this decade of Superman books has extra meaning for me, as this is when I started reading comics. The email section was as good as it usually is, like hearing a conversation between the hosts and the listeners. I did not have a problem hearing Darkseid over your laughter. Good, because I, I would imagine that Darkseid would yeah. punish us, wouldn't he? <laughs> for not making him loud enough. Yes, for, 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 for not uh, for, talk, for daring to talk over his loud Darksidedness. Mm-hmm. I don't think he would approve of that. not taking him seriously and giggling away. I, t- I took him very seriously. It's Clyde I don't take seriously. <laughs> Well, Superman 233, man oh man, that is the cover I think of when people talk favourite covers. I read this issue so many times I could picture it during your synopsis. Superman 296, I don't remember this book, but not. But about compressing his uniform. How did he compress it when he didn't have his powers when it's off? He compressed it before he got hit by the truck, didn't he? Yeah. And he got bombarded with the thing after that, didn't he? I think. Yeah. If I'm remembering the story correctly. I think so, yeah. does beg the question of how he uncompressed it. Maybe he does uncompressing powers. Maybe he just uncompresses naturally on exposure with her, like the Flash. Yeah. yeah. That's 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 why he kept it in his mouth. Possibly. So when he brings it out, it just... But then he's breathing, so... Yeah, okay. It would compress and decompress. The whole sticking in his mouth thing was problematic, wasn't it? (laughs) It was. Let's be honest. Uh, Superman 300, great cover. Like Andy, I like stories like this. Future stories that are decades old now. Action Comics 484 liked the cover so much my mum used it as inspiration for the wedding blanket she made my wife and I. Oh, cool. That's absolutely awesome. I believe Wizard was able to do what he did because of the wand, not his own ability. The story carried on into Superman Family, providing some favourite parts, some of my favourite parts of those stories. Superman 270, not much to add other than as a kid I found Clark Kent's stories very interesting because they showed the other side to Superman. Can't wait for the rest, Chris. P.S. Michael, I'm glad you're enjoying the old stories. Not a lot of the new generation will even try them. Keep reading, there are more gems to be found. Well, I've been quite surprised by how much you've enjoyed these. Well, I am only reading them, to be honest, because of the show. They are enjoyable, though. Yeah, I was going to say, you are enjoying them. Yeah. Our next email came from Dan Tyson. Podcast and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I believe Dan's new. Uh, I think he is. Which I? would be... It's lovely. Lovely hearing from new people. Hi, Dan. Good morning, lads, from cold, unforgiving Canada. Oh! We like the Canadians. We do. Don't we? Mm -hmm. They are our colonial... No, it's not. It's Commonwealth buddies, aren't they? Yes. They are our Commonwealth chums. Mm -hmm. And they get ripped off of the comics more than we (laughs) do. Those poor people. Those poor, poor people. And it's cold and unforgiving here as well, at the moment. Do you think they apologise for being ripped off on uh, comics? That's what we do. (laughs) Sorry about it. On January 6th of this year, I had a double organ transplant kidney and a pancreas. Blimey! Meaning no more diabetes, no more dialysis and months of... Oh, well, we hope you're doing alright. Comics, man. Yeah! <laughs> Read lots of comics, put your feet up, do jack all. Catch up on all those films, Dan, that you've never had time to watch. We do that without having a double yeah, transplant. We, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, no, seriously, we hope you're, you're recovering well and that your recuperation goes very well. Plenty of time to lay around listening to comic-themed podcasts. 
a lot of them. Well, that's a good way to spend your time as well, I suppose. But yours has emerged as a favourite. Oh, thank you very much. We appreciate that. That's right. I'm crediting you two with aiding my recovery. (laughs) We'll take that. Distraction is a powerful thing. I tune in for the humour and genuine comic talk. Does that mean he laughs at us? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, you funny people. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh at you. (laughs) And my comics are more expensive than yours. (laughs) It's the comic talk I'm writing in about. Michael, you said something that perked up my ears. I've listened to recent episodes and past episodes, and frankly, I have no idea when you said it. You mentioned that Back to the Bins is one of your favourite podcasts because they talk about comics. I actually that was me that said that. Yeah. Because you don't listen to any podcasts, do you? I don't know. (laughs) So on the one hand, we can be sure that we're only getting pure, undiluted Michael. Yeah. Not raping off anyone else's opinion. No. Because you don't listen to anything other than music. No. I agree. I love podcasts that talk comics. Some of them take a good 15-20 minutes talking about their inane personal lives before even mentioning anything (laughs) remotely comic related. Often crass and vulgar humour is often mistaken for wit and the comic insights aren't really insights at all. They're basically opinions from geek off the street and I learn absolutely nothing new. That sounds like our show! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest with you, that does sound like us. So what's your opinion of the state of comic-themed podcasts? Blimey, that's putting us on the spot, isn't it? Mm. What else do you like? What makes a good podcast? And more importantly, what makes a bad podcast? No need to point fingers, of course. Um, uh, okay, well, I'm, I'm bound to forget somebody if I list off my favourite comics podcasts. Mm. So I'm going to keep it generic and say I like the shows that are about comics. I like them all. I like them all. (laughs) I like the shows that are about comics. Like that I've mentioned Back to the Bins quite a lot recently because I'm glad it's back because it did rapidly become one of my favourite shows on the Two True Freaks feed because, as I pointed out, it is just about comics. But... I do think we discussed this again in a, a show a couple of weeks ago, I think, or did I cut it out? We had a big, long discussion about, do the, does the personalities of the people affect your enjoyment, affect your enjoyment of the show? And I was like, I'm not one on lots of rambling on about what you've been up to this week. I will amazingly mention in the preamble other shows I'm in on, because I'm plugging them. Yeah. I want you to listen to it. I don't want to record this stuff and people not listen. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we will talk about films or TV stuff that we've seen that is pertinent to the show. Like I mentioned at the top of this show, we saw Dread. Or I saw Dread. I think that is of interest. Well, I don't know if it's of any interest, but I think it's it's relevant to what we discussed in the show. Yeah, you bought from the show. Yeah, I'm not saying I just went out for a pint of milk and stuff. Uh, At the same time, there is a certain element of getting to know the people behind the microphone, and I think that helps a lot as well. Relatability as well. Yeah, but it is a fine line. Mm. between doing all of that. I mean, if you listen to the show regularly, you'll know it has become a very much a family show. Yeah. But I do try and keep it relevant when the family are on it. What makes a good podcast? Well, one, people who are passionate about what they're talking about, mm-hmm. first and foremost. I don't expect you to know everything about your subject. I don't know everything about Superman. I've done an awful lot of reading and research for these shows that we're doing, but even with all of that, I still had that whole, well, I don't know where he kept his Superman pouch. Yeah. Just going back to that, we all sit around and say what we ate for tea. Does that exclude when we went to America and just ate loads of stuff? Well, that was weird, though. People emailed in and loved that. So, 
See, I don't know. People were big fans of us sitting around eating American junk food. And see, does that play into the whole, the personalities of now shaped? Because when we sat down to do this, I set out a list of rules, didn't I? All of which we have systematically broken. That's what rules are for. Well, Reels are written to be broken. Yeah, so my favourite comic book related shows, and I've got to confess, I don't listen to that many pure comic podcasts. Yeah. Because Star Wars Monthly Monday isn't just about the comics, they'll talk about other stuff. And then I listen to Cyborgs, which is about the Six Million Dollar Man, and I listen to the Movie Review podcast. Yeah. And there are so many hours in a day, and there are a ton of comic book podcasts out there. Well, that's one of the reasons I don't listen to podcasts, really. Well, I'd listen to them if someone who I liked was on there, like I listened to the Kevin Smith one because mm. Grant Morrison was on it but the main reason I don't waste time like a 15 minutes walk skill when I listen to my iPod mm. so I don't have enough time to listen to a podcast then yeah and then I, I listen to it at home when I'm reading when I can't focus on listening to one talk yeah. and reading you can't well. read and listen to a podcast or I can't yeah. I have to be listening so um, good audio quality I yeah. would say is paramount importance. So when you listen to something that sounds like it was recorded with someone's knocking yeah. in a basement next to a washing machine. Or recorded under the bath <laughs> while they're swimming or something. Uh, one of the things that did attract me to both views from the long box, from Crisis to Crisis, and the Two True Freak stuff, which were the first podcasts I really listened to, was that they sounded like they could be professional broadcasts. Yeah. The hosts were articulate and intelligent and there was sound effects and background score and stuff that all added to the ambiance. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to do that, because it is exceptionally time-consuming. So I can understand people who just talk and put the show out there. And if they're good and engaging, then fine. fine. Yeah. So, what makes a bad podcast? I don't really... Lots of blank pauses. People who are just flumbling their way through it and haven't done the research or are talking out of their ass. Yeah, I mean, like I say... Is it our early episodes? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I I don't know everything there is to know about Superman, but I think we're open and honest when we don't know something. Yeah. Because I... Well, you know enough to carry the show. Yeah, well, I've done enough research to carry the show. I like to think. I've not just thrown this together. I put a, we've, we both have, really. I've put a lot of effort into these. You put a lot of effort into Avengers vs. X-Men yeah. and Hellblazer. Mm. I've put a lot of effort into these. Between the two of us, one of us normally does a hell of a lot of research that oftentimes doesn't actually play into the show. No. But occasionally an offhand comment will lead us to discuss something and we go, well, we're, because we've done the research, we know what we're talking about. There's nothing wrong with not knowing stuff. But I would rather people admit they don't know it. I don't know if that was a good answer. So basically, good sound quality, enthusiastic and passionate hosts. Yeah. Um, You don't have to know everything, but knowing what you're talking about that week, I think is quite helpful. Yeah. Does that that help? (laughs) Um, I agree with what you say about the crass humour. It is one of the things that's turned me off a lot of Kevin Smith's podcasts. Yeah. I've tried... All of them. The only one I've stuck with is Fat Man on Batman. And arguably... Because of the guests. I've stuck with Fat Man on Batman because of the guests. Yeah, the Paul Dini episodes are fascinating because he's got tons of behind-the-scenes info about Batman the Animated Series because he worked on it. The Mark Hamill interview was fascinating. The Grant Morrison interview, the second half was better than the first half. I've still not listened to it. The second half was him actually talking about his comics. Right. So that was more interesting to me. But... Yeah, he goes too far in, A, the swearing, 
yeah. which he does incessantly and for no reason. Yeah. He's not even punctuating a point, he's not making a humorous joke as opposed to a non-humorous joke <laughs> that relies on a swear word being part of the joke for it to work. Yeah. He just swears. I don't find unnecessary swearing funny. I find creative swearing it's hilarious. Like yes. But I don't find... Um, a lot of the times he will say stuff... He talks over the guest. He talks over the guest. And the sexual connotations that he'll do. Like when he's doing the cuckoo birds coming in, this'll make you wet, this'll make you hot, all of that stuff. Mm. And it's like, Kevin, I don't need that. We're not still 14-year-old boys, dude. I mean, I just pointed fingers there, didn't I? Yeah. But see, the flip side of that well, is... I think with... Because of him being Kevin Smith, it's fine yeah, to point fingers there. Yeah, the, see, the flip side of that, he's a professional and there is a certain element of he's making money from it somewhere. Yeah. Even though he gives the podcast away for free, he's making money off he of it. You're allowed to criticise it. And as a, as a professional, you're allowed to offer criticism and they should be able to take it. Yeah. If they've not got a thick skin, then they shouldn't be in the business. I would never have said what I just said about him, about a... I don't want to say unprofessional podcast. Like I don't know what I mean. An amateur podcaster. Because yeah. I define us as amateurs. We don't get paid for this. Yeah. And he's a professional podcast, Kevin Smith, because there will be a back end in it for him. He wouldn't just give them all away for free. Just yeah. yeah. In case you haven't guessed, I'm considering jumping into the podcast fray. But only if I can entertain and inform. Well, I don't know if we do either. <laughs> Ultimately, uh, Dan, this is just two guys riffing on comics. Michael and I do this when the microphone's not on. Yeah. When we're sat in a morning getting ready for school so and I'm well, getting ready for work. Read the night yeah, I, I read this last night before I fell asleep. Well, Michael will say, Have you read Throne of Atlantis yet? It's yeah. really good. And I'll be like, I've not read it. I'm waiting till it's all finished and I can read it all in one go. And I'm currently reading The Our Worlds at War Superman trade paperback and Michael's just flipped through it and said, Is this any good? And so he sent, I mean, the only difference for this is we have a lot of scripted material. Yeah, because we have to write up the synopses and all of that gubbins. But by and large, we, we have these conversations yeah. when the microphone's not on. I mean, there is a part of me that wishes that when we you and I are together, windows, yeah. we just had the micro. I mean, when we went to Thought Bubble, yeah. I so wish we taped the phone, uh, the conversation we had going up to Thought Bubble. Yeah, because it was really fun. Mm. It was just me and you talking cack about comics, which is essentially the best thing you can do. Yeah. As long as you're passionate about what you're talking about, people will listen to you. Because let's be honest, if they'll listen to us, they'll <laughs> listen to anybody. But I appreciate everyone who listens. I appreciate every single one. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question though, Danny. I tried to. I mean, if you want to give it a go, give it a go. By all means, it is a free-for-all. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say... I mean, I don't consider myself in any way an expert. But the only thing I would say is, listen to the people that you like steal from them because God knows I do Yeah, I steal from people all the time but ultimately you make it your own my opinions are not anybody else's if I agree with somebody that's fine yeah. but if I disagree with somebody that's fine as well but also it's never personal I don't personally attack people if I don't like their work I don't like their work mm. doesn't mean I think that they kick dogs or anything <laughs> uh, but there's nothing wrong with stealing from the best Yeah, and I when we started this we were when we first began, I was just mimicking um, Comics Monthly Monday. Yeah. Well, you'd learn from imitation, really. Yeah. But since then, I think you can listen to us and a Comics Monthly Monday or a Back to the Bins or a Views from the Long Box or a From Crisis to Crisis or a Superman Forever Radio or a Superman in the Bronze Age or any of the different. other... If we could all cover the same book, but the shows would be different. Yeah. 
and I think that's the key. Ultimately, you've just got to be yourself. If you're a jerk, it'll show through. <laughs> it probably does. <laughs> uh, until then, keep up the good work, knowing you've made a long recovery feel a bit shorter. Well, thank you very much. We do appreciate that. And we sincerely hope you get well soon. Our next email, and we're only going to do a couple more. Since we're on the 32 minute Since mark. we're on the 32 minute mark. Um, is from Paul Spataro. New books. Hey guys, thanks for the shout out at the beginning of the most recent episode. I appreciate the sentiment, but I'm not certain that... No, I'm not going to say that. That's self-grandizing. But we appreciate the compliment. Thank you very much. Anyway, as you were discussing Superior Spider-Man, you got me thinking about what current books I believe are worth reading up now in Marvel Now and the New 52. Sadly, there are only a handful that I go out of my way to read right now. I'm reading Spider-Man, Daredevil, New X-Men. All-Star Western and Batman, and that's about it. I'm extremely disappointed with the current iterations of Justice League, Superman, Fantastic Four, and in particular the Avengers. After a masterful run on the FF, I'm finding Hickman's Avengers to be an unfocused mess, and I'm wondering what you guys think of the current crop of books. In particular, when the Superior Spider-Man run ends, I would really enjoy a series of shows where you guys review them. If you put it on your agenda now, maybe you'll get to it in a year or two. <laughs> Best, Paul. Um, sure, run them down there. New books I'm currently really enjoying from Marvel. This is me. I'll turn it over to Michael in a minute. Superior okay. Spider-Man, I think, is excellent. Yes. Um, Indestructible Hulk, I think, is really, really good. I've not been reading that because you put them away before I get to it. Sorry, I wait till the story out finishes and read them all. Daredevil is really, really good. Mm. And I'm on the fence with Captain America. Right. I'm not sure where I'm going with Cap. But Marvel, that's pretty much all I'm reading. DC, I like Scott Snyder's Batman. I liked All-Star, Western and Flash, but I've just had to drop them because of money. That's pretty much it for New 52. Oh, I like Earth 2 and World's Finest when I've read them, which isn't often, but I did like them. Uh, Marvel? Yeah. Spider-Man? Hawkeye? Oh, yeah, Hawkeye. I like Hawkeye a great deal, yeah. Um, That's about it. From DC, uh, Swamp Thing and Animal Man. Uh, Morrison's All-Star Superman. Not All-Star. Action Comics. All right. And Justice League Dark. But you like Jeff Johns' Justice League and Aquaman as well. I do because, well, I like Jeff Johns. Yeah, well, they just balls out superhero books. Yeah. So, right. So that's what we're currently reading. My favourite book at the moment is Saga. By a yeah, long way. Yeah, Saga's very good. Saga, but I recently was... read the three latest issues of that. Mm, Saga's great. Yeah. I mean, the problem with it now is you've got so many people telling you that it's great mm. is that you may not think that it's great when you get to it, but I... I think Saga's the best one. Our next email is Michael Bailey. Happy birthday, Superman Parts 2 and 3. Hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. Andy and Michael. Yeah, that was a boring greeting. I've written a number of these emails. I've just plumb run out of ways of saying hi. Sorry about that. Anyhow, this week's episode was as good as I thought it would be. I like that, because that, he may have had very low expectations. Yeah. And we, we met those low expectations. Well, you should always set the bar low. Yeah, especially, be disappointed. especially with us. Yeah. <laughs> we said our Barlow. Y'all are really giving Superman his due, and these episodes are rapidly becoming my favourites out of all the ones you've produced thus far. You have tackled the subject with Vim, Vigor, and Orpep, and this Superman fan is impressed with the amount of research you have done for the cause. The 50s were a really odd time for Superman, and by odd I mean that in a decade where superhero comics started out on the decline and ended up on the upswing, Superman seems to be the one constant outside of maybe Batman and Wonder Woman. They were the three name brand characters that managed to stay afloat during a rather trying tenure 
years. Sure, Aquaman managed to keep his head above water. Yes, that was an intentional pun. And Green Arrow and Martian Manhunter also managed to stick around, or in the case of John Johns, get created. But they were features in other books and didn't have their own titles. The reason for Superman's continued success during the 50s is largely attributed to the television series, and thank God for it too. I love that show. Sure, it could be silly. Sure, the special effects are primitive. Sure, Noel Neal could grate on my nerves, especially when you compare it to Phyllis Coates. But the show is just a whole lot of fun. You all mentioned Panic in the Sky while talking about the first book, and I appreciated that Andy mentioned the Superboy and Lewis and Clark episodes that played out the same plot in the then-modern context. I always liked those episodes because of that fact. Two minor quibbles. The storyline Panic in the Sky occurred in early 1992, which is close to the late 80s. The date Andy gave for it, but I thought I would mention it. Also, you mentioned that Kryptonite was devised on the radio show to allow Bud Collier a chance to take a vacation. Recently, I've heard that that may not be the case, but I don't have all the facts to back up the claim. There is a book called Flights of Fantasy that I really need to get that apparently dispelled the idea. I only mention it because I found it interesting that the whole Kryptonite cause to give Superman a holiday story might be apocryphal. Which would be quite interesting, because that has been the reason that Kryptonite's invention has been given for decades. Yeah. Your restraint during the whole pearl necklace scene during the coverage of the key to Fort Superman was admirable. I like that story quite a bit, and I think the fact that it's reprinted so often has much to do with the fact that it was the first, according to Hoyle appearance, of the fortress, as it does as it does with it being a solidly fun tale. The addition of Batman to the story shows me how much their friendship was part of the DC universe, such as it was at the time. Of course Batman would want to wish his friend a happy birthday. Of course he would want to play a little joke on the Man of Steel. Of course Superman would figure it out and do the same back to the Dark Knight. It's also commonplace that I forget that a few short decades later, they'd at best tolerate each other and at worst think the other was dangerous. You would think that if someone has come up in comics during the whole Batman and Superman don't really like each other era, would find their friendship strange or silly, but the fact that they were such pals on the Super Friends the early comics I read before becoming an addict had them as friends makes both versions right in my head sure I hate the whole he's an alien and can't be trusted Batman but both ideas have merit I'm glad you discussed the Superman Batman annual whilst going over Superman 76. I remember enjoying Joe Kelly's retelling of that historic tale, but it also struck me as too cool for school. Sometimes Kelly's humour could be a bit much. The original is still a classic, though, and I'll never be able to get to the idea that Lois is a cougar out of my head. Why is she going out on a date with Robin? And what's worse, her dating Robin or the episode of the old radio show where Jimmy says he has a date with Dick Grace and involves him going to the YMCA? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear me. In part three, you've once again chosen some fantastic Superman stories. Like Andy, the first time I read the original Death of Superman was the greatest Superman stories ever told. I guess I'm just kind of thick-headed because I never noticed that they would remind the reader of what happened in the previous chapter when a new chapter would begin. Now I feel kind of silly. Beyond that, this is an amazing story, and as you all pointed out, very dark for its era. It's interesting to think this is how Superman's co-creator saw his creation assuming room temperature. Luther is pure evil throughout the story, and like Andy, I love how he plays his cards close to the vest until he reveals his true colours. My favourite part is when he brings Superman to his secret lure and he has statues of his heroes out front. The idea that Luther commissioned someone to make those statues, and that one had to be rigged to open the door when you shook its hand, is both awesome and silly at the same time. I loved that you covered the Red K story, as that was one of the first Superman comics I ever read. I remember being kind of fascinated at the idea of Red K as a kid, but more importantly, I was fascinated with Superman growing facial hair. It was neat seeing the grisly Adams version of Superman. The book Superman at 50, The Persistence of a Legend, loses a panel from this comic as its cover. 
It's neat to see that once again Andy and I have something in common. I spent a number of years thinking that Swan's art was stiff and wooden myself, but have gotten, as I have gotten older, my appreciation for what the man can do has grown by leaps and bounds. Whilst he's not my favourite Superman artist, I respect what he brought to the Man of Steel, and have come to love his 70s era's work, especially when it by Murphy Anderson. And about the Superman documentary Andy mentioned, it was a fine film and had a number of great interviews, and I still take it out to watch from time to time. However, it would be nice if at some point someone would make a documentary about Superman that has, you know, read the comics from the era they're discussing. Nothing bugs me more than seeing that sort of documentary and playing the game that is thrilling the nation. Oversimplification. It's a Parker Brothers game, I think, and the rules are simple. Give an era of the comics a cursory look and then do some Wikipedia-only research and sum up a complicated idea into sales decline, so they made these changes because that's how comic book fans felt at the time. Maybe I've done too much research into the subject, but it bugs me no end with people writing books or producing films about the history of Superman make everything seem so simple. Even Larry Ty's recent book does this when it talks about the post-crisis area. So I'm with you in not liking that whole sort of thing, Andy. I really am. The Showdown story is one of my favourite Silver Age Superman stories ever. It used to be the oldest comic in my collection until some recent purchases made it one of the oldest. Yes, there are some logic problems, as Andy pointed out, but at the end of the day, this was two mortal enemies finally having it out, man to man. Sure, it could be viewed as a tad homoerotic to have the two bird-chested fighting under a blazing sun, but I choose not to look at it that way. Do you know I hadn't even considered that? Me neither. But as your mum frequently points out to me, I have no gaydar <laughs> at all. You could be the most blatantly gay man in the world, and I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> Do you know your mum had to point out to me Louis Spence was gay? Really? I just thought he was irritating. You don't <laughs> have to tell you what Brokeback Mountain was about. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to watch Brokeback Mountain think it was a western. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? No! They didn't do that in John Wayne films! Uh, the final story sounded like a lot of fun, Michael continues. I've yet to crack the cover on my Superman in the 60s trade paperback, but I will be doing that soon. For some reason, I too started singing I'm a Lumberjack when you were talking about the amnesiac Superman taking up that line of work. This sounded like a solid Silver Age story, and I look forward to getting to it. Before I go, I wanted to clear up something from the beginning of Part 3. Michael seemed to have a mix-up when it came to Crypto in the New 52. Crypto was sent to the Phantom Zone on the day Krypton exploded. Excuse I remember me. that. The Dog of Steel sacrificed his freedom to serve his masters. The animal Lex Luthor had in the first story arc was, for lack of a better term, a mutated animal that Jonathan was trying to dispose of the night Clark landed on Earth. Right, yeah, I knew that, but I assumed that the mutated animal was Crypto that he found in the shuttle with Clark. Right. The government confiscated it, and I assume that Jonathan told Clark about what happened, because Superman sure had a good laugh over what Luthor had. Hope that clears up the confusion. Right. I just... I, I, no, I already knew all that. I just assumed that what Jonathan had and the, they confiscated was Crypto. Right. And I don't know what either one he's talking about. <laughs> Proof positive that, yeah, I've done my research, but not into the new 52. No. Another great couple of shows, gentlemen. These are fast becoming my favourite episodes, and you keep making this good. Demanza will have you doing five shows a week. They will have to up our salary if they want us to do five you shows know, a week. Actual salary. Yeah, to, to actual money. And real money as well, not the euro. Yeah. That's collapsed, dude. Our proper money. Payments in euro. Yeah. <laughs> Take care, mates. Mikey might be. And finally, we're just going to squeeze another one in. Very quickly. This one is from David Bland, who I believe is a new emailer. Hey, guys. I just wanted to let you know that you've got at least one fan in Bristol, Connecticut. God, if we're ever okay. stuck in <laughs> Bristol, Connecticut, we'll, we'll be coming we've got it. somewhere to stay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't think we won't set you up on that. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> also, please do a show about Marvel Civil War. This was my first event comic that was supposed to change everything for Marvel. At the time, I loved it, but, well, just review it. David Bland. I think we should. At least one person wants us to do it. That is good enough for us. It's in the book as a, a possibility. There are several things in the book as there a possibility. Are several things in the book. Yes. We have one, two, three, four, five, six other emails that I'm afraid we're going to have to leave till the next show, otherwise, we're not going to get to any comics. Mm. But if you emailed in, your emails are on the docket for next time. Because when we said we've got no emails, people really jumped up to the cars, didn't yeah. they? So, and we appreciate every one of you. We will read them next week, I promise. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break and then get to tonight's show. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics, and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow, the Last Son of Krypton, the Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speedy bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Longbox. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, 75, the celebration, celebration of a legend. Of I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75. The Celebration of a Legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Longbox. Views from the Longbox is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, 
over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. I still don't believe it. A man who flies. He's all over the TV. Oh, Jimmy, don't believe everything you see on TV. I'll tell you one thing, though. We have a full of hoax like this. It's, it's uh... I see it, but I don't believe it. What, a man who flies? No, Lois Lane. Finally, literally swept off her feet. Too bad he's an alien. I think considering the fact that I saw you first, you owe me an exclusive. Is that the rule? Well, no. But I'd appreciate it very much. for the Man of Steel as it does for us all and the revitalised Superman was a great success commercially and creatively although not all of Superman's older fans were too happy with the changes J. Michael Straczynski who would go on to write the grounded story arc and the new Earth 1 graphic novels has famously stated I don't know who this guy is when talking about the post-crisis Superman and writers like Mark Wade and Jeff Loeb both tried to subvert the new continuity in their own works Loeb in his Challenges of the Unknown miniseries and Wade alleged decrying this version and wanting the real Superman back. The general public, however, seemed to neither know nor care, but within the comic book community the reboot could be deemed successful. The general public would receive their third dose of The Man of Tomorrow in 1988, the year of Superman's 50th birthday, with television specials, the cover and an article in Time magazine with art by John Byrne, a party in New York and in the UK, a brand new radio drama and the cover of the Radio Times with art by Brian Bolland. The comics celebrated with a triple-sized 80-page Action Comics issue 600 in May of 1988. It was therefore a huge surprise that amidst all the hoopla, Byrne quit the Superman titles with Superman issue 22, cover dated October of 1988. At the time, Byrne cited creative burnout, appropriately enough, having produced the equivalent of six years' worth of work on the character in a little over two years. In the intervening years, however, Byrne has spoken about the way DC didn't seem to support the new Superman in other media, like marketing, which still used the Jose Luis Agacea Lopez, praise be his name, imagery. He also says he was frustrated by the constant editorial interference that resulted in alterations to the original Man of Steel series. Superman was to have been a novice when he started out originally, and the alterations to the Legion. To be fair, Byrne has blamed editorial interference whenever he's left a book, so this probably wasn't a big deal. 
With Byrne gone, steering the Superman comics into the 90s was left under the editorial auspices of Mike Carlin. Carlin would control the character for most of the early to mid-90s, and in my opinion, created some of the finest Superman comics ever, with extended storylines and the introduction of the Triangle System, allowing readers to follow the strip through four different comics every week of the year. With continuous stories, subplots and extended arcs, Carlin and his creative team were creating the best Marvel comics of the decade. Notable stories included Exile, The Day of the Krypton Man, Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite, and The Mark of the Krypton Man. Clark and Lois grew closer, and after Clark revealed his secret to her, were engaged. All of this paled in comparison, however, to the biggest comic book storyline of the 90s, The Death of Superman. Initially started because the creators couldn't marry the couple as planned in Adventures of Superman 500, they instead had to scrap all their plans due to the possibility of a new Superman television series, then titled Lois Lane's Daily Planet. With no ideas and pressed for time, the creators threw their hands in the air and said, let's just kill him. Apparently, this had been said in jest many times before whenever a plotting session was going nowhere. Only this time, Carlin took it seriously. The storyline was epic in scope, groundbreaking in execution, and a phenomena in sales. Thanks to this storyline, in the mid-90s, Superman retook his rightful place on the centre stage of comic book awareness, and when the character finally returned in Superman issue 82, cover dated October of 1993, he was at one of the peaks of his success in his 50-odd year career. The need to constantly one-up the death and return storyline would be a mixed blessing for Superman fans. Whilst there were some decent storylines over the next few years, the Zero Hour issues, the death of Clark Kent, and even the much derided Electro Superman, a modern retelling of Superman Blue and Superman Red, which I think has its moments, the marriage of Lois and Clark was rushed and botched, again due to the comics being forced to defer to the new television show that had just started airing. Whilst this kind of cross-pollination had happened before, as we've mentioned on previous shows, in this case a relatively short-lived television incarnation should not have been allowed to influence the creative process of the comic book character in such a long-running and well-planned storyline. With the publication of Superman issue 151, cover dated December 1999, more than a decade was coming to an end. Whilst Carlin had stepped down as editor with issue 108, Casey Carlson and Joey Cavalieri essentially carried on as he had, following his template, and I believe Carlin, more than anyone including Byrne, deserves all the credit for this era being as successful as it was. Carlin was given a job. Steer the Superman franchise through the choppy waters of the 90s comic book landscape whilst following the characterization set down by Byrne in the revamp. And he did it with class, protecting the character above all else. This all changed when editor Eddie Berganza took over, and we started seeing the beginning of the end for the post-crisis and Mike Carlin era of Superman. In other media, the 90s were a remarkable era for Superman fans, despite starting off badly. There were many aborted cinematic attempts to revive The Man of Steel, following the success of Tim Burton's Batman in 1989. The Salkins tried to resurrect the movie series with a script by comics writer Curry Bates, and even courted Christopher Reeve to return to the part. Nothing happened, and the possibility was forever curtailed on May 27th, 1995, when Reeve was injured in a horse-riding accident that left him a quadriplegic. Interestingly, following this, he became more of a Superman than ever in the hearts of people around the world, and he is remembered today just as much for his strength of will as a human as for his most human portrayal of Superman. Warner Brothers' resurrection attempts continued unabated. Former hairdresser John Peters was then appointed producer, and a man less suited to Superman it would be hard to find, as he seemed to have no affinity for the character. Scripts by Gregory Proudhur, 
I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Jonathan Lemkin and Kevin Smith were all rejected before everything came full circle, and Tim Burton was hired as director. A man less suited to Superman had been found. Wesley Strick wrote a new script. Tim Allen was approached to play Lex Luthor, and Nicolas Cage was cast as a burly, recognisable Superman. Dan Gilroy rewrote the script. In 1998, this came very close to reaching the screen, with Cage even attending costume fittings, but a ballooning budget and dissatisfaction with the script led Warners to can the project. Cage and Burton still walked away with two and five million dollars respectively for not doing anything. Nice work if you can get it. Far more successful were two different TV incarnations of The Man of Tomorrow. Lois Lane's Daily Planet was reformatted as Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and debuted in 1993. A breeding experiment between the traditional Superman legend and the then-recent TV hit Moonlighting, the first couple of seasons produced an entertaining and diverting show that appealed primarily to female viewers that had little to no interest in Superman previously. Dean Cain was cast as Superman Clark Kent and Terry Hatcher as Lois Lane. John Shea oozed malevolence as Lex Luthor despite having a full head of her. The series' quality and popularity plummeted in later seasons, proving that the writers had watched Moonlighting a little too closely, and even mimicked that show's failure in keeping an audience once the couple had got together. The series was cancelled in 1997, after four seasons. Much better, as far as traditional Superman fans were concerned, was Superman the Animated Series, from the same team that had created and produced the excellent and well-received Batman the Animated Series. Casting Tim Daly as Superman and Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, with an excellent Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor, the series produced a number of excellent episodes over its four-year run, including a number of notable team-ups with the Batman, and introduced many other elements of the DCU that would be followed up in the next animated venture, Justice League. Speaking of... This leads us to this week's comics. Following the revamp, Batman and Superman were given a more antagonistic relationship. No longer were they old chums, and the difference in methods were highlighted. They also met very few times, no longer part of the Justice League or the world's finest team. Notably, they had their first meeting retold in Man of Steel issue 3, teamed up again to rid a small town of vampires in Action Comics Annual Number 1, clashed over how best to handle the Joker's diplomatic immunity after the death of the second Robin in the Death in the Family story arc in the Batman titles, but generally avoided each other wherever possible. The story we're about to cover actually begins in Action Comics issue 652. Dr. Amanda McCoy, a former scientist at Lexco, is disgruntled. She created a program that revealed Clark Kent was Superman, but Lex, in his arrogance, refused to believe it and canned her. After hiring a PI to steal the kryptonite ring that claimed Lex's hand, he was unfortunately killed when Intergang tried to kill Clark Kent. Amanda finally confronted Clark with the ring, but fearing she had killed him, fled and was mugged. The one true ring fell to the floor, unseen, until Smeagol found it. of the duo of the 90s took place in a three-part crossover, Dark Knight over Metropolis. The first part of which appeared in Superman issue 44, cover dated June 1990, released on April 17th, 1990. The issue has a great cover by Jerry Ordway. Batman stands looking at what appears to be a dead body in an alleyway. 
as Superman lands behind him. The foreground image is taken up by the dead man's hand reaching for a green glowing rock. The texture of the low fog drifting across the crime scene is very subtle, and the grime and muck of the alleyway is enhanced by debris and litter everywhere. There's a great trade dress to this series within a series as well. Across the top, Superman stands in the traditional corner box pose, more akin to a Marvel comics than a DC one. And up in the top right, Batman poses before the moon. The landscape of Metropolis, complete with familiar buildings such as the Daily Planet, Galaxy Communications and Lex Corps can also be seen. Dark Knight over Metropolis is written overhead. It's a very effective and really sells the idea of this being a mini-series within a series, but the downside is it reduces the actual art of the page to a square box on the bottom two-thirds. In many ways, it's similar to the covers Marvel did in the 70s. What do you think of that one, Michael? If I was just to there's not much of a cover on it. Oh no, but the art's really detailed on what there is. And I love that trade dress. I yeah. just love the top quarter of this page. You could have just kept it as that. Yeah, I suppose so. I've just done some. I've just left it blank. Well, I've done like an Iron Maiden cover where it was a city and Batman and Superman were in it. Yeah, I like it. I like the not so much the Batman and Superman stuff, but the actual detail of the alleyway. Mm. He's got bus tickets and there's a key and a paperclip and some money and some polo mints and a book of matches and the background is really quite detailed. I like it. I like the little rat on top of the bin. Yeah, I just think it would have been a lot better if it wasn't cut down to three quarters. Yeah, I mean, that's the one plug. The trade dress does hurt it in that it does affect how much cover you've got. One of the things I do like about this is over the three issues, the trade dress gets darker as oh, the yeah. dark night falls over Metropolis, which I thought was a really lovely touch. I did not notice that. The issue was written by... Jerry Ordway, penciled by Jerry Ordway, and inked by Dennis Jank, or Janke, however you pronounce that. Cat Grant, main witness at the upcoming trial of Morgan Edge on racketeering charges, her bodyguard, Jose Delgado, formerly the costumed vigilante gangbuster, and her son, Adam Grant, stuffing his face with popcorn, leave a cinema screening of Gone with the Wind and Cut Down an Alleyway. They are being watched by two separate figures. One of them is Slam Bradley, who witnesses the trio being attacked by a brick wall. The wall is actually an invisible man called Blindspot, who punches Jose and makes a play for Cat. Bradley draws his gun, and the shadowy figure watching elects to take a wait-and-see stance as Blindspot takes Cat and makes with a fast fade. Delgado grabs Adam's popcorn and hurls it at Blindspot's direction. The sticky confectionery adheres to both, and Delgado manages to grab Cat, and he and Adam make a run for it. The shadowy figure chooses that moment to drop by, and it's... Superman? Superman finds Blindspot and tells him to inform Intergang that Cat Grant is under his protection, and leaves him to slam after a signal from Professor Hamilton. His visit with Hamilton concerns kryptonite, and Superman finds himself thinking of the woman he met a few weeks ago, who attacked him with a kryptonite ring, and he wonders what became of her. His answer, although he doesn't know it yet, is lying in the morgue, beaten beyond recognition. Inspector Henderson muses that Metropolis is becoming as bad as Gotham City, which, as segues go, is pretty effective, as a way of taking us to that beleaguered city. The Batman stops a homeless man from having all of his possessions stolen, but he's too late to save the homeless man who passes away due to alcoholism. With the homeless guy dead, Batman looks at what he dies for, and a bus ticket from Metropolis and a glowing radioactive rock attract his attention. He leaves the thief for the Gotham City PD and takes his leave. Back in Metropolis, 
Lex learns of the disappearance of his kryptonite ring, whilst Morgan Enthe consults his attorney. Both consider not attending the Zenith Awards banquet for journalistic excellence, given their current woes, but decide that the show must go on. Also interested in the awards is Mannheim, head of Intergang. He's hired two new super crooks, Chiller and Shockwave, to nab Cat Grant, and decides the best way to avoid Superman is a distraction technique. If he arranges an attack on Lois and Clark and the banquet, Superman will be busy though, and the hit on Cat can go down. Back in Gotham, the Batman deduces that the rock is not man-made, but has been expertly polished and mounted, which leads to another question. Why mount a radioactive rock? The Vagrant can't have had it long, but where did he get it from? Too many questions for the Batman, so he responds to an RSVP for Bruce Wayne to attend, you guessed it, the Zenith Awards Banquet for Journalistic Excellence! Later, Clark and Lois head out on a date as a mysterious caped figure lingers outside. That was a very comic synopsis for quite a dark issue. Do you think? Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's just. Maybe I'm just naturally not yeah. able to take things seriously. You should, you should uh, be the type of person who tells people bad things like. <laughs> say, there's a doctor who needs to tell the patient you've got cancer. That's just get you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> You've done it! <laughs> well, thank you very much. I think there was a compliment in there somewhere. If you look for it. If I look very hard for it, yeah. Uh, page one is an exceptionally interesting way of bringing the reader up to speed. Ostensibly, it's a memo from Mannheim concerning the upcoming trial of Morgan Edge. It details the main players in the story, Cat Grant, Jose Delgado and Morgan Edge, at the par- and the parts they play. Humorously, it changes into a request for a raise at the end. It seems to have been an add-on, as the page numbering for the main story numbers page 2 as page 1. Maybe they thought there'd be a number of new readers due to Batman's guest appearance. It's always a possibility, isn't it? Could be. Uh, There's also a little sidebar, a news clipping concerning a mysterious woman's body that was found in an alleyway. I thought it was quite an effective way of bringing you up to speed. Okay. Kind of like what they do now with the story so far pages, isn't it? Instead of leaving it all into the exposition. Page two, your two favourite heroes, Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and Batman, created by Bob Kane, in one adventure together, the top of the page proclaims, which is a nice little nod to older Superman-Batman team-ups. I I always liked that Batman logo. Yeah. Do you like that one? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not a fan of them. Do you know, it's the 90s era Batman logo, lovely I, listeners. The bat is kind of slanted to the right. I know, that's what puts me off with the slanted. Do you <clears> not <throat> like that? My favourite logo of all time is Batman within the bat. Mm. But I think that's just because... Did he do one where it was similar to the end credits for the animated series where Batman was the end holding his cape and the cape would go into the logo? That was the Batman Adventures logo. Right, because I quite like that one. Oh no, they did do that on Jeff Loeb's Hush, didn't they? Yeah. That was the logo in Hush. Batman with the cape over his face. Yes. No, I like that. I thought that was quite good. I like that Cat Grant's um, newspaper article is called Cat Call, which is quite yeah. funny. I, I thought that was great. I news. like Cat Sun's t-shirt. Is it Venom? I was going to say, it's, you even, think? it's even like Venom Spawn or the Tally Man. Yeah. I'm getting a Venom vibe from it, but it does work as the Tally Man as <laughs> yeah. well. I doubt he'd have a Tally Man t-shirt. To be honest with you. Uh, interestingly, the issue has no subtitle. It's called Dark Knight of Metropolis Part 1. Mm. And that's it. There's not a subsidiary title. Maybe this, one's, maybe this one's called Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Is it supposed to be Gone with the Wind and that's why it's covered up because they didn't want to... I don't know, because they say in Cat's article Gone with the Wind. They quite clearly say it. 
Right. So, well, even then, it just says gone well, it says with gone the. with the, and then if you look, the wind. So because the sign itself says one the the. You can't wind. copyright a title. But it's for a film. No, you can't copyright a title. I don't think or a name. Is it, there's one of them you can't copyright. Right. You can copyright a logo, mm. but I don't think you can copyright a title. I think we've said before somebody could tomorrow make a film with a character called Luke Skywalker in it. Yeah. Now that they've got Disney dollars behind them, probably not. They, they wouldn't be very wise to, <laughs> but I think they could do it. Yeah. So I don't see any problem with just having that they've gone the cinema to watch Gone with the Wind. Fair I enough. don't see how that would be a copyright issue, but I don't know. I mean, you are right that it is covered up, which uh, I haven't paid any attention to, to be honest with you. I do like that the column talks about using CGI to alter the ending to Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Which, given that we currently live in an era where we've gone past colourising movies and now we're making everything 3D, yeah. whether it was planned that way or not, I still thought it was quite pertinent. Did they change the ending with CG? No, they've, they've not changed the end to Gone with the Wind. Although, I wouldn't put it past I've it. never seen Gone with the Wind. So. I think I saw Gone with the Wind a long time ago when I was very little. They could have made it 3D colour and changed you the ending. You wouldn't know, would you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the art on this splash page is really detailed. Uh, there's a mysteriously shadowy figure following from a nearby rooftop, and each and every member of the crowd leaving the cinema looks like a real person. Cat and Jose seem to be pursued by another figure from comic book literature, Dick Tracy. Look at Slam Brand. Oh, right, yeah. Look at the advert for Dick Tracy on the next page. <laughs> Tell me they weren't doing a riff on Dick Tracy. Mm. Especially when he's talking to his thingy or his radio. Yeah. Um, page three. The P.I. figure is Slam Bradley. Slam, a hard-boiled P.I., was created by Siegel and Schuster in 1937, predating both Superman and Batman, and predated Batman as one of the stars of Detective Comics. Oh. Here, he seems to have been reinvented as a cop rather than a private dick. Well, I only know Slam Bradley from... Uh, New Frontier. Yeah. Where he was... He was, was he a P.I. in New Frontier, or was he... No, he was Yeah, he was a private detective, wasn't he? No, I'm sure he was the police. Cause no, because John Johns was the police. And they were working together, weren't I they? I know, but weren't they working together in New Frontier because they were both working on the same case and John went to him and said, look, you're a private eye, I'm a cop, but both working the same thing, let's work it together. I have no idea. I, I thought Slam Bradley was a PI in New Frontier. I was assuming that he was a cop. But you, you we, could be right. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. Even though we covered New Frontier in depth and heartily recommend it because it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Darwin Cook holds his money. <laughs> uh, Bessel or Boulevard, uh, on the top of page Three, I'm going to get mixed up with the page numbers, aren't I? Yeah. Because this comic does have page numbers in it, but they're wrong <laughs> because they've inserted that new page one. Um, is a reference to George Reeves, whose real name was George Bessalo. Okay. I think they make a reference to Bessalo Boulevard quite a lot in Lois and Clark as well. Mm. Um, two adults and a kid on the way home from the cinema take a shortcut down an alleyway and are mugged. That seems familiar. It does. I don't know where from. No, no. I'm sure it'll come to me. Um, page three. Oh, would it be page four? <laughs> I don't know at this point. Well, anyway, the page where um, Superman is revealed. Yeah. To me, the, uh, Superman felt a little out of character in this interruption. Because not only... Well, the things with the earth is he's shown with horns. Yeah. And he poses Batman. So I thought it was Batman. When she was supposed but to think. when he decides not to intervene and just sits there watching until the last minute, even though there is Slam Bradley and an ex-hero on the scene, it still doesn't feel like Superman to sit and watch. Uh, yeah. Especially when he openly says he's not going to intervene. 
Yeah, when he says he's just going to wait and see. Uh, yeah. I didn't buy the Superman fake out at all. They go to great lengths to make this look like Batman to the point where I'd actually consider this cheating. Mm. He's seen crouching and leaping instead of flying. He's shown with horns. Yeah, he's clearly given what's supposed to be batters mm. on two different pages, isn't he? And I didn't like it. Even even on page six, I mean, I'm skipping a few notes, but I'll go back, where he's, he lands at the side of Slam Bradley. He's clearly shown as if he's leaping and not flying. Yeah. And I just... It was too close to cheating for me to buy it totally. They they went... They wanted you to think this was Batman to the extent where they he cheated in the artwork. Yeah. The only thing Excuse they me. didn't do was make the cape spiker. Top well, page four. You can argue that. They've clearly drawn that to look like a scalloped cape. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. They've gone so far to make you think this is Batman that I think they've cheated because I did go back because I was so convinced it was Batman that when they revealed it was Superman I did go back and it was mm. Batman yeah it's one of those old Republic serials where you see the car fly off the edge of the cliff and blow up yeah. and you go oh he's dead and then next and week then next actually, you see a scene where they've jumped out before the car goes over the cliff and yeah. this is one of them it's a deliberate fake out that I didn't like because it was so fake. Uh, having said that, Blind Spot was a brilliant visual. Yeah. I love on page four, or whatever page it is, when Ordway draws him as taking on the characteristics of the environment. So it just looks like a brick wall's come to life. Mm. The artwork here was phenomenal. Again, especially the fight in the alleyway on page five, where essentially Jose and Slam are battling an invisible man. Um, Ordway doesn't take the easy way out in the artwork. He has blind spot evoke his background as he moves, which gives the character a very unique look. It's the best kind of fantasy artwork in that this science fiction concept is all taking place in this scuzzy alleyway. Yeah. I thought this was great. A great opening. I love Jerry Ordway, though. Yeah. I think Jerry Ordway is a fantastic artist. Certainly in this era on Superman I mean I've mentioned before I was such a burn victim when traditionally he left the book I left the book with Superman I didn't with Superman I carried on reading it and a lot of that was down to Jerry Ardu and later Kerry Gamill who were both excellent artists so I stuck with it um, I did love when Superman does finally show up I loved him casually catching a bullet which is great because mm. the bouncing off his chest thing is iconic but oh, could ricocheting bullets not hit bystanders yeah. so I like the fact that he catches them I always prefer that I think that's more I always get the vision of health and safety having a word with him <laughs> after he's just stopped a bank robber Superman we're fine you're getting shot just don't want yeah, the ricochet yeah. and there's section section 4 paragraph 3 subsection 2 it clearly states here that ricocheting bullets can still kill people Superman alright so, well then the next time you health and safety guys are <laughs> in danger then I'll just let you die you know I, I won't intervene in case it by uh, in case it goes against your uh, health and safety rules, so. <laughs> no, 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 no. But just catch the villains if you, yeah. and, and the bullets if you, if you can. That'd be great. Thank you. And do you mind signing here? No. Sign it, Carlisle. Um, I love his X-ray of yeah. blind spot where he, he finds him by seeing his internal organs, just floating organs next yeah. to a wall, which I thought was fantastic. Mm. I really did like that a great deal. And on page seven. I loved his, what's his name? His, uh, his Batman-esque line, tell your friends, tell all of Intergang. <laughs> I would have loved it if he'd followed it up with, I am the 
I am the Man of Steel. <laughs> tell your friends. Tell all your friends. I'm Superman. It doesn't quite work, that, does it? No. It's not quite as effective. I'm Batman. I am the Knight. I'm the Man of Steel. <laughs> no. See, you would think Superman being tough. And certainly I would have bought Golden Age Superman being tough. Mm. But it does... It in theory it works, but in practice... It's yeah, it doesn't... This era of Superman doesn't pull it off as well. No. You always get Superman as being a quiet yeah. threat. I mean, the fact that he's just caught a bullet would purely make you go, uh, maybe I should be somewhere else. Mm. But no, Superman being tough in this era didn't... I never really bought it, to be honest with you. Um, I did like him casually destroying Bloodsport's equipment, though, where he just rips his uniform to bits and then crushes it. Yeah. Which I thought was hysterical. Uh, page eight, we get another news clipping, this time from Scotland, and it features a mention of Dr. Coe and Mac Bourne. Did you read the news clippings? Um, I didn't actually. No, no, okay. uh, Dale Coe and Malcolm Bourne were prolific letter hacks in this era, and both from the UK. Okay. I no, understand. None of them actually... Pay, paid into the story at all? No. It was just a tip of the hat. Fair enough. To these, these letter hacks. I understand Dale Cole worked at Odyssey 7, which was the first comic book I, store I ever went to in Manchester. I'm sure it's not there anymore. No, it's not there anymore. It used to be Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet bought them. Because nah, right. it was originally in Oxford Road, mm. and then they opened one up near the Corn Exchange. And then when it moved to where it is now, Oldham Street, isn't it? Yeah. Oldham Street, Oldham Road, it became Forbidden Planet. They, right. they sold up to Forbidden Planet, which was a shame. But at least you don't have to get a bus now once you get to Manchester, which was a bit of a pain in the ass, to be honest with you. Uh, the pages with Professor Hamilton are essentially wrapping up loose ends from other storylines, although they do contain the rather excellent sequence of Superman warming his coffee with his heat vision, yeah. which I just thought was a great little pocket bionic as it was called in the $6 million. I just like how he's just like, Superman, i got something important to tell you. Do you want some coffee? Oh, I wouldn't mind a drink, yeah. Do you think Superman needs coffee to stay awake? See, this was something about this era of Superman I didn't get. I he mean, still seemed to need sleep. Yeah, but would the sun not be his yeah. version of coffee? I mean, you can probably argue he doesn't need to eat, mm. I suppose. Well, maybe he'd have like coffee at night when there is no sun. <laughs> you know, He can still fly at night, dude. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, but there's not as much sun, so if he needs that extra boost, he goes and has a cup of coffee. Oh, fair enough. It's like, Lois, Stop. the sun's gone down, and, you know, I'm kind of feeling tired. You want to go to Starbucks? And I was like, Clark, it's three in the morning. Yeah, I know, but I've got to stop, like... Well, I'm not sleeping. I've got to stop Metallo, and, you know, I'm running low, so. I don't sleep, so... Page 10. The newspaper clipping at the top of page 10 is again a reference with mention of the Schwartz Arcade building. Julia Schwartz was, of course, the editor of the Superman comics throughout the Bronze Age. I did like that all this important stuff was happening down at the morgue and all this investigation with Batman. And Superman not only doesn't know, he has no idea who she is, what she wanted, or why she had the kryptonite. Mm. Which I thought was really good piece of storytelling because too many times the, the Superman knows everything. Well, not just that. I mean, we will get that version of Superman in a couple of weeks yeah. when we do another a different story. Writers make the mistake of allowing the characters information that they shouldn't know just because we, as the reader or the viewer or the writer, have it. Yeah, and it's something that bugs me every time I notice it that he shouldn't do that. He shouldn't know that. We know that because we're yeah. the audience. But as a character, he shouldn't know that. And um, you do spot it a couple of times when you're watching things, if you're paying attention. So I was glad that they, they didn't do that here. Page 11, 
the alley scene is almost prototypical Batman. Yeah. But no less entertaining for all that. The night belongs to me. It's such a quintessential Batman line. I can totally hear Kevin Conroy saying that. I did like that Batman will return the homeless man's goods, proving Batman has no boundaries on what he does. He's the definition of equality. He doesn't care this guy's homeless. He's been mugged. Yeah. And he will stop the mugger. Which I thought was a lovely little touch. The panel where Batman watches his, in his usual gargoyle crouch is as effective as it ever is when it's drawn by a decent artist. And Ordway, as anyone who read the 1989 Batman movie adaptation will know, is an excellent Batman artist. I still prefer his Superman, though. Hmm. I don't know why. I just do. Uh, the homeless guy dying when his goods are stolen is a nice touch, as if with all his worldly possessions gone, he just gave up. But you could also argue that it was a bit convenient. Yeah. I'm glad they mentioned that Batman's utility belt has a shielded compartment in a word balloon that looks like it was added on later. Isn't it convenient that the, my utility belt has a lead casing in it? Yeah, the compartment shielding for holding explosive shells looks like it's a tacked on word balloon yeah. in the middle of page 11. If he didn't have that, he wouldn't be having any kids, would he? Because mm. I don't remember if... Yeah, Son of the Demon's happened at this point, hasn't it? Yeah. Son of the Demon was 1987. That panel at the bottom of that page was 12 or 11. Yeah. Looks a lot like John Byrne. You think? Yeah. See, I don't see that. Do you not? No. Like his stuff from Generations. Mm. I think that looks very Byrne to me. Do you think it's the fact that his his costume is more grey and black than grey and blue? And it's the pose. Because Byrne did that a lot as well. It's the pose that does it. And the capage. Yeah. Yeah, alright, I'll give you that. I, I don't see that, but I can see what you mean in terms of the body language and stuff. Yeah, uh, the the crooks line on that page that um, hey I'm getting ripped off by Batman was a great line, especially when he followed it up with what's the world coming to? Mm-hmm. Like this crook can't believe that Batman's a crook, which was I thought was really funny. I did that genuinely made me laugh. Uh, we've got the overall influence of Batman the animated series here. It is hard to imagine a time when Batman didn't have that grapple hook. Mm. that he uses in Batman the Animated Series. I mean, it's, it's just become so pervasive. But here we see him getting around the old-fashioned way. Silk and cord and a hook that he actually has to throw. Yeah. It doesn't work as well. I can understand why they've adopted the grapple. Because if you think about it, he's got to throw that up. How does he gain any momentum to swing from the from the floor? Yeah. If, he's a, if the rope's above him, how does he swing up? Because the grapple shot him. Yeah, yeah, the grapple pulled him. And I always thought that had the added effect of making it look like he could fly, which would freak people out, I suppose. Mm. So it is one of those things I can understand why the comics have adopted it. Uh, Page 14 through 17, I really liked these pages. I thought this was really good comic book writing. Whilst tying all this in with the current plot line, the writers also managed to tie up some loose ends. Brainiac's control of Luther from some recent action comic storylines, and further the plot by having Mannheim and Gillespie arrange a suitable distraction. This actually strikes me as a good idea. Keeping Superman busy with one thing whilst you're up to something else is quite clever. I like it when the bad guys are clever. Mm. There has to be a reason these guys are in charge. You wouldn't just put a dunderhead in charge of Intergang. Who tells us everyone their plans in one long monologue. Yeah. Uh, um, page 17, or 16. Yeah. Um, Batman says that the ring is harmful. Yeah. But because it's kryptonite, I thought it was harmless until there was a prolonged exposure to it. He, like actually, he does actually say that. Alright. Oh, Fatal with long term exposure. Right. So he spots that with long term exposure. How, how does he know this, though, if it's like kryptonite and everyone knows it's harmless? 
Because he's Batman, dude. But... Okay, so Batman knows that it's harmful. He's analysed. Scientists don't. No, no, no. Kryptonite is not harmful to people under a general rule. He's pointing out that prolonged exposure, it could be harmful. So how does Batman know this now when we only realised it when Lex Luthor had it and no one knew it beforehand? Because he's Batman. Okay. (laughs) Is that not a good enough reason? I totally buy that Batman would be able to figure that out. I really do. Because we, we did only learn it from Luther having to have his hand amputated yeah. after wearing the kryptonite ring. But I totally buy that Batman would be able to analyse it and go, mm, prolonged exposure would kill or make you have a hand amputated. <laughs> I totally... Glad I didn't keep it near my bat <laughs> for long. <laughs> That's a bat as well. Yeah. Then he takes the costume off and then it's back to... Uh... <laughs> Page 19. It's to the writer's credit here that all these disparate elements are being woven into such an excellent tapestry. So well, the reader doesn't once stop to analyse the coincidence in all of this. That the vagrant would happen to be in Metropolis at the exact alley where Amanda McCoy was mugged. That he would pick up the ring. That he would then journey to Gotham City to be in the exact alley where Batman could find his possessions. That Bruce would be able to reply to an RSVP to an awards banquet being held by the original owner of the ring now in Batman's possession. That's a staggeringly coincidental chain of events. Yeah, but it's in a comic, so we're fine with it. Yeah, well, my thing with that is I was sat here... Again, I've read this tons of times, and it's one of those things you don't notice, so you've got to sit down and actually analyse yeah. it and write the synopsis. And I'm sat there going, and people are worried about the fact that the burglar who killed Uncle Ben happened to find Peter <laughs> Parker's house. That's perfectly acceptable compared to this. And yet no one's ever picked this apart, as far as I know, mm. and gone, that's just far too coincidental. <laughs> but the fact that... It's so well done that if you were just reading it, you wouldn't pick up on it. Well, stories rely on coincidences. Yeah, there's an awful... That's another thing with the, the Peter Parker thing, where people have... Like, we have to explain mm. how the burglar got to his house. No, well, then the story it's called work. coincidence. It happens all the time in mm. stories. What are the odds that the Joas would take the drugs <laughs> to the one person in Tatooine who knows who Ben Kenobi is? Infinitesimally pictoscopic <laughs> is the odds. And no but one has a problem with that. No one has a problem with it, as mm. far as I can see. No one has ever picked up that apart. Mm. And out of all the rebel soldiers, Luke and Leia found each other. Yeah, what are the odds of that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also liked on this page, Bruce originally turned down the invite because the dinner was hosted by Lex. Mm. They never really made enough of the fact that Lex and Bruce would move in the same circles until No Man's Land, when it's Lex Luthor who comes in to help rebuild Gotham. Do you remember yeah. that? Um, yeah, Big. I think I do, actually. Because he uses that as his platform to run for president. Right. I liked it when the, the continuities were all interlinked like that, instead of just force-feeding it. Well, they still are. Yeah, but they're step. like that now, because they've told us that it's like that. Yeah. Like the new Superman Batman comic, where we're going to meet Superman and Batman for the first time. Didn't Justice League issue 2 already cover that? Superman and Batman meeting for the very first time. Yes. Five year timeline. (laughs) (laughs) Ending their own reels a little bit. A little bit. Uh, Pages 20 through 21, Superman fixes the statue of Jor-El and Lara, which is a lovely little touch. Again, ties up loose ends from previous storylines, which is not a criticism. Just an acknowledgement that nowadays this would be written with the inevitable trade in mind. And as such, they'd probably just cut this page out. Excellent art in that sequence, though. I always love seeing multiple Supermans. Mm as he's, he's doing something super fast. Like, I always like seeing multiple Spider-Mans 
when he's doing acrobatic stuff. I always thought it was quite good. Uh, page 23, further evidence, Mullard, that the opening page was added later. Giving this story 23 pages means the letters page has been dropped, which I thought was a shame, because I always liked the letters pages mm. in this particular era. I like reading them in certain cases. I think they give you a good time capsule of what was important in comics at that time. And yeah. in some cases, how things don't change. Like last week, the letters page was all about Superman hooking up with Wonder Woman. Hmm. And that's happening now. Yeah. So I, I, I like when something controversial has gone on and everyone's raging. Like, I found <laughs> the letters page in Superior Spider-Man were hilarious. Because yeah. only like two people actually got what was going down in that. Everyone else was, I'm quitting the yeah. book forever! And when I read Superman, I read Superman Blue and everyone was saying, raging about that. And that was funny as well. Yeah, see, we don't think Superman Red, Superman Blue is anywhere near as bad as people say it is, do we? No. It's actually quite entertaining. That is the stuff I read, yeah. yeah. But everyone was like, oh, I will drop the boot because Superman is his costume. But Yeah, it's just a story, you, dude. You don't understand, Superman's costume has changed several times since... It's changed a lot recently. That's Superman's costume... Well, that, that goes back to what we were talking about last week. That wasn't a status quo change. That was just a story. Yeah. Killing Gwen Stacy was a status quo change. This is just a story. Yeah. In my opinion. I think we've just chilled out a lot, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> um, people can rage, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there'll be something for us to rage about at some point. Yeah. Although the new Spider-Man costume in Amazing Spider-Man 2 looks a lot better. It looks the same to me. No, it doesn't. The first one was awful. This one looks alright. Okay. <laughs> Despite an ending that is both abrupt and a very unsatisfactory cliffhanger. Seriously, part one just stops, yeah. doesn't it? Uh, this was an excellent first part of a multi-part epic. There's an awful lot of information imparted here, and that it's done so well distracts from the fact that this was the era of constant subplots and the sheer coincidence of many elements of the story. It was also only after reading this and typing the synopsis I realised how little Superman actually does in this issue. Still, it's jam-packed. There's no pattern in the art. Spectacular. Adventures of Superman 467 came out on April 24th, 1990, with a June 1990 cover date. The cover follows the same trade dress as last time, but the main body shows Superman and Batman looking over a body in the morgue. A lot more chilling then than now, what with the proliferation of procedural TV shows that do this every week. It's still quite a moody and effective cover by Dan Jurgens and Art Thibbert. Tibbert, however you pronounce it. I say Thibbert. I say Tibbert. Do you? Because it's T-H. So I read that as Th. But whatever. The story again has no subtitle, simply Dark Knight Over Metropolis Part 2. It was written and pencilled by Dan Jurgens and inked by Art Thibbert. I like that cover. Did you? I really like the cover, actually. I like the capage. I like the background and the moody Superman. Yeah, it is very, very, um. The lighting, for want of a better word, is very good on it, isn't it? I'm starting to like Dan Jurgens recently. I didn't know you didn't like him. But I, I still have my problems with him that he's very much out of my generation, but I've started to appreciate him more now. Okay, fair enough. Superman hovers over Midtown Metropolis, pensive. The Batman is in Metropolis. At that precise moment, he's breaking into Precinct 9's morgue, taking pictures, and the fingerprints of a recently discovered cadaver that we know as Amanda McCoy. The Batman is caught by an off-duty cop who hits the alarm as Batman decides to dive out of a window in lieu of answering any questions. Superman hears the alarm, but instead of the Batman, bumps into another vigilante prowling the street, Jose Delgado, a.k.a. Gangbuster, who is protecting Cat Grant. The Batman arrives and says to Superman they need to speak alone. 
the Batman and Superman take their leave, which is unfortunate for Gangbuster, as just seconds later, Chiller and Shockwave attack. They quickly kick the bejesus out of Gangbuster, and Chiller manages to make himself look exactly like Jose. Superman and the Batman meet up with Alfred in an alleyway. Sans Batmobile, Alfred drives a rather classy-looking Mercedes, and, of course, it's equipped. The Batman tells Superman about the death of the Vagrant, and Batman has linked his death to the mysterious mugging in Metropolis. How? Because he's Batman. He supplies Superman with a mock-up photo of what the woman probably looked like before she was beaten to mush, and Superman recognises her as the woman from Action 653 that nearly killed him in the cemetery. Superman tells Batman about the ring and how it was Luther's, but Batman doesn't mention that the ring is in his possession, and the duo break into LexCorp over Superman's objections. Batman and Superman manage to crack Luther's defences and Batman learns the name and address of the deceased woman and they take their leave just in time as seconds later Luther's warsuit division arrive. At the banquet, Inspector Henderson is expecting trouble from Intergang as Clark and Lois meet Bruce Wayne, who is also introduced to Lex. Clark is concerned that if McCoy worked for Lex, Lex may know his secret, but either Lex doesn't know or he's playing it very close to the vest. The small talk is interrupted as Intergang attack. Clark notes that they only say find Lane and Kent and don't mention Cat, but a stray blast nearly hits him. He's shoved out of the way by Luther. Realising that Lex really thinks he's saved his life and therefore can't know his secret, he heats up the pool with his heat vision causing a fog and switches to Superman. Bruce, meantime, gets Lois to safety and, in the ensuing fog, switches to the Batman. Intergang didn't count on the world's finest team, and together Intergang is dispatched pretty sharpish. Meanwhile, Cat Grant is in trouble from the man she thinks is Jose Delgado. Uh, the opening page is again another suspected add-on, and is exactly the same as last time, except somebody stuck a post-it note stating that soon as we have Grant called Dr. Moon, an update from Intergang about Blind Spot's failure, and an edition of Cat Grant's column Cat Calls concerning the imminent arrival in town of Bruce Wayne. Amazing, making her positively giddy. Mm. The idea that Bruce is going to show up. Uh, page two, I thought was an excellent splash page. Yeah. Tibbet's inking, or Fibbet's inking, does something to Jurgen's already excellent pencils and gives the whole thing a sheen that makes it sit both very 90s and very pleasing to the eye. Every detail on the splash is gorgeous, from the cars to the posters and signage. Speaking of which, Superman is hovering at the corner of Swan and Boring, <laughs> which I thought was a nice touch. I love that splash. Yeah. It's really good. Well, I think this page is what really shows the difference in times with Batman and Superman's rivalry now. Why? Where it's, I can feel him out that he's invading my city, my turf. Yeah, that they're not friends. Yeah. One would imagine it wouldn't take Superman long to find him if he really put his effort into it. I don't really buy Superman having turf. Mm, with, yeah. With superheroes protecting the city, like Spider-Man. Yeah, because, you know, he lives there and he can't get anywhere else. Batman, Metropolis, uh, Gotham... Yeah, because he can't really get out anywhere else as Batman. But a Superman who can fly and who's... Essentially Superman's beats the, the world. world yeah. yeah, I mean, he just thinks of Metropolis as home, doesn't he? Well, that's because of Clark Kent, though. Yeah, but... Not Superman. Uh, I don't know. Superman's first appearance was in Metropolis. I get what you say. I think it's more the word, my turf. Yeah, I don't buy him having turf. Yeah, it seems a bit what's it. My city, my home, hmm. I buy... My turf just sounds like he's trying to be down with the hood, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I don't really see Superman having one of those cars that bounces up and down on its axles and having his his women walking around going, you you sleeping with my man? And Superman going, no, 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 plenty of me to go around, woman. 
I don't really see that happening, do you? Guess how Superman. <laughs> now there's an action figure line. <laughs> Battle damage, guess how Superman. Arrested, guess how Superman. Oh no, she didn't! Lois Lane action figure. And uh, you've got uh, the action figure hand, the, the finger comes up and shakes from right to left. Oh no, she didn't! With the whole Lois variant. <laughs> Trailer trash love. <laughs> Complete with three small babies. That's the distraction. <laughs> Double pack with Trucker Joe. <laughs> Trucker Pete Ross. <laughs> now that's an action figure line they have never done. I'm sure it would sell like a very sellable thing. Landlord Brainiac. <laughs> you don't pay your rent this week, you're out! Let's give me another week! I'm putting you in a bottle. That just went down a very strange path, <laughs> didn't it? Uh, anyway, back to this issue. Page three. What I really liked about this era of comics, other than the potential for bizarre action figures, is not everything happens on panel. Like last issue where the vagrant was found, the kryptonite where the vagrant found the kryptonite, sorry, and made his way to Metropolis in between issues. Here we learn Batman has already made contact with Clark, as we saw him outside Clark's apartment on the last page of last issue, and now Superman is slightly concerned. His different relationship with Batman is spelt out on this page as well, with Superman concerned about his methods and his working outside of the law. Contrast that with the Superman of nineteen forty. A uh, great shot on the last panel of this page of Superman with his cape wrapped around him. Burn, as we talked about last issue, last issue, mm. last episode, last issue sewed. Thanks, Scott and Chris. Um, may have introduced capeage, but I think Dan Jurgens perfected it. Yeah. I love that. I love the idea he's just wrapped his cape around himself because it's not like he needs to do it to keep warm. It's wrapped around his legs as well. Yeah. So it's, you can see his figure through his cape. Yeah. Dan Jurgens did some excellent capeage. He really did a good job with the cape. Um, page three, the Batman going about his business in the morgue is another excellent page, especially panel one, with him hung upside down and the cape falling past his head. I know in real life a cape like that wouldn't be practical but in any way. Cool in a comic. Yeah, and comics are real life. Mm-hmm. I think people just need to, to accept that sometimes. Coincidences and capage works in a comic. Yeah, in real life you'd be like, no. Uh, I can't believe that the cop, though, who finds Batman in the morgue actually says, Freeze, sucker! Yeah. Because you're like, really? And I love that Batman just ignores him. I really like that when Batman just laughs at him and runs up. Yeah, essentially Batman laughs in his <laughs> face, doesn't he? He doesn't do that, actually. No. But it, that is essentially what he's doing. Mm. He just mocks the guy, laughs in his face and dives out the window. <laughs> like, does, does the screw you, flat foot. Does the cop actually pull the alarm as well? Because there's that sound effect on the last part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the guy says, now you hold it or I'm going to hit the alarm. And Bruce, Batman, sorry, says, go ahead. And he still hits the alarm anyway after yeah. he's gone. For all the good it'll do you. Like Batman curse that this guy <laughs> just hit the alarm. <laughs> I just, there's a part of me that just loves no crap Batman. Yeah. I don't like godlike Batman over much. But I do like no crap, Batman. Hmm. I've not got time for you. <laughs> I don't care what you say. Uh, page six, love the shot of Superman hovering horizontally hmm. in mid-air on panel two. I have a hard time accepting Superman mistake, would mistake Gangbuster for Batman, though. Yeah. The guy's got, you know, X-ray vision and heat vision and telescopic vision and... Well, not only that, but Gangbuster's not wearing a cape. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had a hard time believing that, but page seven has a lovely bit of foreshadowing. 
Superman talks to Gangbuster about playing hero with no powers and says, I know I'd think twice about charging into a nasty situation if I stood a good chance of coming out of it with battle scars. Which, of course, is what will happen to him in just a few short issues. In the Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite story arc, where he will lose his superpowers thanks to Mr. Mixius Pitalik. Okay. And Lex Luthor. Mm. Obviously, Lex is always in it. Another good dialogue exchange on page 8. Is he always this intense? Asked Gangbuster. Actually, replies Superman. He seems in a good mood tonight. Uh, before that, as well, where Batman says, we're good to talk. And then he just looks the at Gangbuster in a silent panel. And then looks back at Superman and goes, alone. Mm. <laughs> it's like, I like this Batman. Yeah. He laughs at cops and... <laughs> takes no crap from anybody (laughs) and I like that Gangbuster's like I'm stood right here and Batman's still I don't care I don't care (laughs) it's funny Mm. you give it a pass I mean he's an arrogant snot but he's got very short stubby ears in this story as well Batman yeah I prefer long ear Batman you know unless they're ridiculously long Uh, page 9 you know no disrespect to the character who I quite like, but Gangbuster was a really crap vigilante. Mm. The amount of times he gets hurt, beaten up, and generally abused is quite astonishing. But I suppose that's what made him a fun character. He was a far more believable vigilante than Batman because he was so naff. He was always getting hurt, Gangbuster. I think he ended up in a wheelchair at one point. Still going. Yeah, still still (laughs) going after criminals. Uh, Page 11, seriously. How did Batman link a random mugging in Metropolis to a random mugging in Gotham? Because he's Batman. That's what I said in the synopsis. I didn't buy it then either. I'm sorry, but but that's the best we're coming up with, is it? Yeah. Because he's Batman. All right. It works. Yeah. Uh, page twelve. Superman tells Batman the woman knew his secret, and Batman accuses Superman of killing her. <laughs> that was hysterical. <laughs> she knew a lot more than my identity. Hmm. You didn't do this to keep her quiet, did you? And it's like, what? <laughs> that was genius. I just I just got visions of his next question being, where were you when he went the clock on the <laughs> I don't kill people. That's what you say. Yeah, but I know you sit and watch other people get hurt. <laughs> I, I also love the Watson's name. Batman has the thought that no need to tell him I have the ring. It may come in useful. <laughs> uh, it gives us an inkling of the Batman who prepares for everything that becomes prevalent in the 90s. This Batman's just funny, though. He is. Inadvertently. <laughs> I don't think he thinks he's funny. Which is... Uh, he's not, like, cracking jokes, is he? Um, page 12. Or maybe 13, even. Yeah, it's 12, actually. Yeah. One. I, I did like Superman's line about killing Lex. Yeah. Well, I, it's another no-crap Superman. If I'd considered myself above the law like you do, I'd have killed Luther long ago. And then Batman replies, If some of the rumours I've heard about Luther are true, you should consider it. Mm. And you're like, so the guy who just appeared you go was saying to Superman, Are you sure you didn't kill this girl? <laughs> so Is now advocating <laughs> killing Lex Luthor. Yeah. Make your mind up, Batman. Which side of the fence are you on? Do you kill... Or do you not? I just yeah. like how accusing he is. It's like, did you kill that person? You should have killed that person. <laughs> Genius. Uh, page 13 was absolutely awesome. Uh, Superman objects to breaking and entering, and the Batman's put down is really funny about, um, you want information? We do it my way. 
And I love his line that breaking and entering isn't my usual modus operandi, Batman. Sure, your style would break down the door and look tough. <laughs> Which is great. Would Superman have committed breaking and entering? No. Superman. He's only entering. Arguably, yeah. Batman does the actual breaking, <laughs> doesn't he? The back and forth through, between the two of them throughout all of this is fun. Hmm. Um, and funny, but when Superman is to destroy the cameras with his heat vision, Batman is surprised. I liked that Superman's heat vision was not widely known. Yeah. It was a power that he didn't advertise. Well, I liked about when he doesn't know everything. Yeah, he doesn't know he has heat vision. Mm. Uh, it, like you say, it shows that Batman doesn't know everything. It's one of those things like, why does Spider-Man let everyone know he's got spider sense? Yeah. Wouldn't you keep that quiet? Because yeah, that's a fantastic yeah. early warning system to have. As long as no one else As long as no one it. knows you've got it. Yeah, letting people know you've got it always seemed a bit dumb to me. Uh, some more great capage, or as we go through the next couple of pages as they break and enter into LexCorp, Batman's cape clenched around his fists and the way Superman just falls over him is really well drawn. Uh, and on page 14, of course, Superman ruins the elements of surprise on this page by confirming that he has heat vision. What a blabbermouth. I do like that the armoured LexCorp employees are wearing resembles Luther's pre-crisis battle suits. Yeah. Which I thought was a nice he touch. Won't, he wants even his security guards to look like him. Well, he didn't have that armour in this continuity. Yeah. He had, it was in one of the issues of Man of Steel, I think, where somebody wore the armour and it drove them slightly mad because Luther arranged it. But he didn't actually wear the armour himself it until Superman Batman issue one, isn't it? Well, I, I remember him wearing it in the animated series, didn't I? Oh, I think he did, yeah. Because I remember having an action figure of it. Yes, I think he wore it in the animated series, but in the comics he only wore it when Jeff Loeb was writing Superman Batman, didn't he? After the presidency stuff was over. Yeah. Because I remember the panel, which was paid homage to the Wolverine panel. Yeah. Where it's looking down him in the sewers. And he's got the battle armour on. At the end of issue one, that, I think, wasn't it? Um, or was it at the end of the first story arc? It was either the story arc, yeah. It was the last page, last panel, wasn't it? Luther and his battle armour. Page 17 was very interesting. Jürgen's and Thibbert's art is glorious, whether depicting pretty people in superhero costumes or pretty people in evening work, but the character moments are what sells it. Henderson has an entire squad of cops undercover as waiters and Lois Lane meets Bruce Wayne. I think for the first time in post-crisis continuity. Lois and Bruce had often had an interesting relationship. In the issue we covered a few weeks ago, she made a play for Bruce to annoy Superman. And in the animated series, they had a fling. The relationship between Clark, Bruce and Lois is much more cordial and less snarky and less I'm funnier than you than it would be when Joe Kelly would retell their first meeting in Superman Batman Annual Number 1. Although I read Superman Batman Annual Number 2 this week, which I thought was much better than Annual Number 1. Yeah. I thought it was really... Have you never read that one? I've read them all, but the only one I remember is... It's got Scott Collins' artwork. Alright. And it's the one where Superman loses his powers. So Batman teaches him how to fight without powers. And it's really, it's actually a really much better than Annual Number One because it's not as snarky, but the funny bits are still funny. Because there's a brilliant bit where um, he's told Alfred that Clark Kent's Superman, and Superman's not impressed. And later on at the Kent farm, Bruce comes to visit him after he's lost his powers, and he says, They don't know who I am. And Clark says, Yeah, I was raised to learn when a secret is mine to show. And you're just like, oh, slide that knife in between the ribs. Yeah. Which I thought was a really that, that nice touch. I just can't remember that. I, it was really good. I was really quite pleasantly surprised. And I only read it because it was in the same plastic bag as annual number one. Yeah. I know one of the cardinal rules of comic collecting is you don't keep two comics in one bag, but they were. So 
deal with it. And so when I got them out, they were both together. And I thought, oh, go on, I'll read Annual Number 2 White out of the box. And I really enjoyed it. read it in my dinner hour the other day. <laughs> I read a lot of comics in my dinner hour. I read a lot of comics in my media class. Uh, I mean... Uh, uh, when you should be working. Well, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Steve Lombard, Clark's annoying Bronze Age nemesis, gets a name check. Lois hates him. Mm. Which just goes to show what a shrewd judge of character Lois is. I think it's funny that he doesn't look anything like Steve Lombard. No, he's, he's a he's a fatty in this. Well, one, he, he looks more like what's his face who works with Matt Murdock. He does look a bit like Franklin Foggy Nelson. Yeah, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He looks a bit porkier and a bit pudgier, mm. like he'd be played by Oliver Platt or something. Then not someone who plays sport. Yeah. But you don't get that he's a sports commentator in this, do you? No, but knowing who Steve Lombard is. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody was crying for Steve Lombard to come back. <laughs> uh, Clark was a blue bow tie and Bruce a red. I thought Bruce would have gone for black. Yeah. To be honest with you. Uh, page 18. This also seems to be the first meeting between Lex and Bruce. I don't know if that's true. But they certainly don't seem to have met before. Lois references her mother also on this page. In a previous story, Lex has blackmailed Lois into continuing to use a drug to keep her mum alive that only he can provide, which is why she feels in his debt. Uh, again, the scene where Clark thinks Luther is going to reveal his secret idea is very tense and milked for all it's worth. I especially like that Luther say, thinks he saved Clark Kent's life, so he thinks that they're now even. Yeah. And Clark was in the midst of just opening his shirt and so he's just clutching it so he doesn't see that he's wearing the costume which I thought was nice um, page 19 through 20 is a lovely little action beat Intergang come out swinging but blow it by only mentioning Kenton Lane which I thought was quite a smart way of Clark putting two and two together and realising that this was a distraction a distraction secondly they resolve that does he know question with Luther really effectively and again Clark's realisation of it makes him seem smart and not dumb his way of switching to Superman is quite clever as well even if it may not work quite that quickly again like we covered in the first Batman Superman team up I'm left wondering why Bruce brought the bat suit especially as an appearance by Batman in Metropolis just as Bruce Wayne is around seems a pretty dumb move for such a smart guy yeah just like appearing on the boat in uh, yeah. that issue that we covered a couple of weeks he ago. He doesn't plan these first uh, he, he doesn't seem to plan it very well at all, does he? Page 22 is a really brief fight scene. Lois mentions that an appearance by two of Gotham's most prominent citizens in one night is most unusual. One of the few times a Lois leap of logic actually makes sense. Yeah. Why the hell would Bruce and Batman be there on the same night? Lex is concerned only for his property and not for any injured people was also a subtle character moment. Yeah, like how on his property all this room appeals in the shape of an L. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't notice that until you pointed it out. A uh, really excellent issue, short on action, sure, but high in drama and characterisation with some gorgeous art. Taking on its own... It doesn't really stand up, but as the middle part of a trilogy, it does everything it's supposed to do, moving all the characters around and into place for the next part. What I really liked about it was how quickly it moved while still taking a breather for dialogue. This is where comics have lost something with the elimination of thought balloons, as we get an awful lot of Clark's concern through these story touches, and the piece wouldn't be as effective without them. Especially as, because of thought balloons, Clark can worry about this alone and never tell anyone his fears. This would be handled via hard-boiled captions nowadays or by a pointless conversation. The difference between Batman and Superman are well handled, but I can see how Batman would be unsufferable at times. The conclusion to the story 
was in the pages of Action Comics issue 654, which shipped on May the 1st, 1990, still with a June cover date, and boasted a cover by Kerry Gamill and Brett Breeding. Superman swoops into the Batcave as Batman stirs at a computer screen. Unless the next shot is Superman bopping Batman on the head, it's not particularly interesting, because let's be honest, no matter how hard they try, no one, be it in a movie or a comic, has ever succeeded in making somebody tapping on a computer keyboard interesting. Again, there's no subtitle, and it was written by Roger Stern, penciled by Bob McCloud of the Clan McCloud, and inked by Brett Breeding. Yeah, I really want Superman to bop Batman on the <laughs> <laughs> Just sneak up behind him and go, thwack! Yeah. <laughs> If, if that was now, it would be a what if Superman accidentally splattered Batman's what face if off Superman the accidentally knocked Batman's head off? Yeah. <laughs> Superman and the Batman race towards Cat Grant's apartment to find the building across the street from her destroyed. Superman investigates, whilst the Batman proceeds to Cat's apartment. Superman finds Jose Delgado beaten but alive, and he tells the Man of Steel about Chiller and Shockwave and his suspicion that Cat may have left with somebody who looked just like him. Shockwave, who seemed to have been taking a nap under the rubble, pops up to say hi. Sure enough, Cat was lured easily by the chameleonic Chiller and has been taken to Dr. Moon, who plans to rearrange her memories a little to ensure a more favourable testimony for Morgan Edge. Moon straps Cat in the Aurora chair, but just as he is about to hit the button, Batman, Superman and Gangbuster arrive. Moon manages to make Make it to the Aurora Chur's control panel, but Gangbuster prevents him from throwing the switch. The armoured intergang defence squad manage to hold their own, but are ultimately no match for the new world's finest team. And Gangbuster. Ugly Manheim and Gillespie watching on CCTV are less than impressed and decide to cut Edge loose. The Batman, meanwhile, hasn't stuck around for the final curtain, and Superman tracks him to the address of Amanda McCoy they retrieve from the Luther computers. He gives Superman Amanda McCoy's diary that contains all the information they need to wrap this all up and go home, including details about Superman's secret ID. Batman explains over three years' worth of outstanding subplots to Superman concerning Amanda and her desire to prove to Luther that she was right about Clark Kent being Superman and how that obsession ultimately led to her death. He then reveals that he has the kryptonite ring and takes his leave, but not before telling Superman he has left a few anonymous clues for 5-0 to lead them here, and if he was Superman, he wouldn't leave either the ring or the diary lying around. A few days later, Bruce Wayne reads the newspaper which tells how Morgan Edge has been sent up the river and the case of Amanda McCoy has finally been closed. Suddenly, the bat alarm sounds, and down in the bat cave, Bruce finds Superman. He gives Bruce a ring, saying that if something should ever happen to make him go rogue, he needs the power to stop him to be in the hands of the one person that he can trust to do it. Page one, exactly the same as the other opening pages in this trilogy, only this time a piece of notepaper has been plopped down over it. It confused me. Why does it say Edge is going to fry? If they have Cat Grant and are going to play with the mind, I thought Intergang wanted Edge to get off. I thought that was the whole point of the story, to make Cat Grant testify so that Morgan Edge gets away with it. Uh, maybe um, they think the plan's going to fail and he's going to fry, and then that makes him do it. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Oh, no, because it says Chiller has Grant, Moon and his machines are ready, and then Edge is going to fry. Yeah. So I didn't understand that. I mean, later on they say, right, nothing's worked, let him, de- let him go cut him loose but at this point they're trying to get him off so that didn't make any sense to me I was a little bit confused by that I could just be that I'm thick but you know 
Uh, page two, I freely admit this is personal prejudice, but Superman carrying Batman always just felt a bit strange to me. <laughs> I can't imagine that Batman enjoys it. Well, they look like best buds, though. Well, no, because Super- I don't think Superman looks at all thrilled by being that close to him. Batman looks even less thrilled. Well, if you think about it, I bet Batman sweats a lot. Okay. So Superman's like, Jesus, Bruce! Buy some deodorant, dude! Maybe he's designed his costume to not let the odour... <laughs> the odour doesn't come out. No. So he doesn't take off his cowl at night and just four gallons of water goes out. Well, yeah, when he takes his costume off, all the stink just fills the cave. Oh. That cave not only smells of horrible bat poo... It smells of, 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 of sweaty costume. Yeah. That's why he has so many. Yeah. <laughs> he burns them after every use because of how much they get sweaty. I can, I can buy that. Um... Page three. Batman's statement that even the Joker has a twisted logic but there seems no rhyme or reason to intergang's actions was just dumb. I get that intergang aren't the sharpest tools in the shed but they've got a level of logic to their actions in this story. They are yeah. trying to get Morgan Edge off or acquitted. Or fried. Or fried eventually, yeah. But the Joker is frequently knocking foot. Yeah. So I, I really didn't understand that line coming from Batman. Mm. It just it didn't make a lot of sense to him. Uh, page five. As with a lot of this story, Gangbuster has a ton of exposition. The problem with it is none of it is for the audience. We already know all of this. So it's purely for Superman's benefit. And honestly, a lot of it could have been cut. And just off panel, Superman could have just said something like, Gangbuster brought me up to speed. Yeah. And that would have been all we needed. Especially I would have liked to have seen Superman rip Shockwave's outfit off of him. Instead of just hearing about it later. So we get a page full of exposition that we don't need, but we don't see the fight scene. Mm. Which seems a bit silly in a Superman comic, where part of the appeal is, I don't know, Superman's kicking the crap out of somebody. Again, that that left me uh, scratching my head a little bit. Uh, Page 7. Dr. Moon first appeared in Batman 240 from March 1972. He's not really one of Batman's most feared or memorable adversaries. Superficially, he reminded me of the James Bond villain Colonel Sun, who appeared in the first non-Fleming Bond novel, but that may just be me. There was also Dr. Moon in the Silence in the Library episode of Doctor Who. Uh, I did like that Dr. Moon strapped Cat into the Aurora chair from Farscape. Or even though this was before Farscape. But that is essentially what she's strapped in. She's strapped in the chair that Scorpius uses to torture Ben Browder. Oh, not Ben Browder, John Crichton, for his, his wormhole knowledge. Okay. For the rest of the comic book series, Cat Grant should have had a Dr. Moon in her head that she just talked to at random. That would have been hysterical. And she should have started calling it Harvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I find all that funny, but you've never watched Farscape. <laughs> Uh, page 9 through 13, to make up for the fact that we don't get Superman kicking the crap out of Shockwave, we get an excellent action set piece with Superman and Batman kicking ass. However, the intergang armoured death squad seem to be giving Superman a far harder time than Batman. Superman is wrestled to the ground, blasted with energy truncheons, and generally takes quite a beating compared to the Dark Knight, who takes a few of them out without breaking a sweat. Superman's being taken down by what looks like Robot Man from Marvel. He does look like... Which Robot Man? The purple one, he could have stretchy limbs. I don't know which one you mean. Do you know me from the Doom Patrol? No, no, from... Well, he was a robot guy, or a cyborg, in Marvel comics. And he had stretchy limbs and wore a purple costume. 
Do you know, I don't remember him. Completely blanking on that one. I only know him from Marvel Zombies. Right. Oh, Machine Man! Oh, yeah, him. Right. Okay. Robot Man, Machine Robot Man. Robot Man's from Doom Patrol. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's why I said Marvel, just so you know. Just so I knew the difference, yeah. yeah. One would think that would have clued me in, but apparently not. Uh, I suppose we could say the intergangers are prepared for Superman and well, not, not for Batman. But if you're prepared to take down Superman... Then surely we should be easy to take down Batman. By definition, yeah. yeah. You're prepared for Batman, but whatever. Um, Page 15, I did like that Batman just disappears. Mm. And even with super speed, Superman doesn't make it to Amanda's apartment quicker than Batman does. Which I thought was a nice touch, if slightly implausible. Yeah. But I did like it. Um, Page 17, Superman gets his own back on Batman accusing him of murder by accusing Batman of ransacking Amanda's place. (laughs) And it's handled wonderfully by Batman, who just gives him a Hard stir. <laughs> what did you do to this place? Nothing. And then he just carries on with what he's doing. I like taciturn Batman. Yeah. Compared to wordy Batman. It's quite fun. Uh, page 18 through 19, essentially another two-page info dump, tying up a number of loose ends that have been hanging around the Superman books for a while at this point. Well, I noticed this was <clears> going from Man of Steel. Yeah. So. From Superman issue 2 and Man of Steel. Yeah. Uh, Amanda McCoy first appeared in Superman issue 2 43 issues ago. And this is an example of either the long term subplotting that comics used to do all the time, or writers realising that there were a few loose ends from previous creative teams that may make for a good story. Mm. And went for option B. It was a good story as well. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stern always handled this kind of thing well, and he gamely keeps the exposition to two pages. Uh, although on page 20 Batman makes Superman a criminal he points out that Amanda's apartment has not only the kryptonite ring and the diary in it but also a Smallville high school yearbook and a Kent family photo album and that he wouldn't leave them there for the police to find so basically he leaves it to Superman to tamper with a crime scene fair enough doesn't he? I don't care where you justify that it's tampering with a crime scene so, Batman is essentially made Superman culpable. I like how he makes Superman do it, though. Yeah, I mean, like, he's done the breaking and end. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But nobody can prove Batman's there. So, yeah. how bad of it, dude? <laughs> Which I thought was... You know. It's hard to imagine a small smile not playing across Batman's face when uh, Superman says of the kryptonite ring, you have me at a disadvantage. And Batman just goes, I know. <laughs> Which is... I loved Batman in this. Yeah. <laughs> He's actually quite pithy, mm. which I thought was quite funny. Uh, on page 22, Bruce knows that it's Superman before he goes to the cave. Superman knows that Bruce is Batman. Why bother putting on the Bat costume? Does he know it's Superman? Yeah. Does it? Yeah, because he makes it quite clear. He says someone's in the cave, and Alfred says, but who, sir? And he presses a button, and a screen pops up, and he sees says... Uh, so... So he knows it's Superman. He knows who right, he's expecting. Because I was assuming that someone's in the Batcave, better put my costume on. See, I got that he knew it was Superman. Alright, okay. Alright, well, both work. Yeah. But I, I th- but your, your version works better for explaining why he put the costume on. Mm. But I thought that he knew it was Superman. But okay, either way, work. Doesn't really matter. Uh, the last page is interesting in that Superman gives the kryptonite ring not only to someone who will use it, but also to someone who will not hesitate to use it, which I thought was important. He couldn't give it to any of his friends, lovers, or family, as they may hesitate. But Batman won't. Batman will fry Superman's ass if he has to. 
Uh, there are a number of ways Superman could take this out without it being anywhere near Batman if the need arose. But it was a significant step forward in the character development. All told, I thought this was a decent wrap-up to a pretty good three-part. The art was solid throughout and the writing was sufficiently on model so that any changes in team did not feel jarring. I preferred Ordway's art in the first part to any of the others, but art in the eye of the beholder. Uh, this was a story I felt should be highlighted as it perfectly demonstrated the differences between the post-crisis and pre-crisis world's finest team, and by and large, even through two or three different Superman origins and the New 52, the antagonistic, not-quite-friends approach to the characters has been one of the era's longest-lasting developments. This was also a story I picked for a few other reasons. We've already covered part one of multi-part stories, and I actually wanted to cover a complete story, but also highlight the differences between complete stories then and now. Whilst this was a three-part arc, even down to the trade dress and title, it wasn't really. The issue of action, number 653, was part of the story, and the whole three-part arc not only had ties going back three years, but also was very much there to set up future developments. If this were a three-part arc today, with the trade very much in mind, there'd probably be less loose ends left at the end of the story itself. Whilst possibly being part of a larger storyline, it would not perhaps be so enmeshed in the continuity that stretched back quite so far. In fact, read from today's sensibilities, interpreting this as a three-part arc may lead to some disappointment when reading this story, but viewed as simply three complete issues in and of themselves that together form the larger tapestry that is the ongoing narrative, not constrained by six-part written-for-the-trade story arcs, I think this story takes on a more satisfying air. What did you think of it, Michael, as a whole? As a whole, I thought... It was much more enjoyable than separate issues. Because when I was reading it as separate issues, I wasn't enjoying it as much. When I look back at it as an entire story, mm. I think it was more enjoyable. Well, I did um and ah about what to choose for the 90s, well, to be honest. because I was thinking, you choose an entire decade and you go for essentially one story. story. Yeah. yeah, but like I said, I did want to cover a complete story. Because we have covered part one of multi-part stories in numerous occasions. The first part of Who Took the Super Out of Superman. The first part of Luther Unleashed. The first part of the Brainiac revamp. So we've done that quite a bit. Mm. So I was like, well, let's not do that this time. But also, From Crisis to Crisis is deep in covering the death of Superman at See, the minute. So I didn't want to do that because that was quite recent in everybody's minds. Okay. Some of the Superman other stuff Red, that Superman I would have wanted to cover is big long story arcs. Superman Red, Superman Blue, which both you and I don't think is anywhere near as bad as lots of people do. Yeah. Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite's a five-part story arc, which was very good. Exile went on for over a year, but it was very good. Mm. And I didn't want to cover any more Burn stuff because A, he didn't do anything in the 90s. And B, we'd already done And we'd it. already done it. So I was kind of... Although there was a plethora of stuff for me to choose from in the 90s, I was kind of a bit, well, what should we cover? And I almost covered the wedding. Yeah. I almost picked the wedding issue as a good one. But I actually feel the wedding is rushed and botched and doesn't actually work as well as it could do because yeah. it was rushed into production so that they got married at the same time as they did on Lois and Clark. So you didn't want to do something negative. So it's not negative because I don't think that issue is awful by any means. But yeah. at the same time... So ultimately I plopped for that one. Right. But, you know... Rightly or wrongly, that's the one we chose to do. It's too late now. Yeah, I'm not re-recording the episode. <laughs> Finally this week, a rather offbeat choice, but one that frequently features on lists of people's top ten Superman stories. It's an issue that won its writer Garth Ennis an Eisner Award 
but does this much lauded issue deserve the accolades? Not one of the traditional Superman books, Hitman issue 34 features a cover by John McCrea of the titular Hitman, Tommy Monaghan, and Superman sitting on top of a rooftop, chilling and maxing and relaxing all cool. Super Friends asks the cover copy. It's okay in that it shows Superman will be in the issue and conveys the idea there will be a fair bit of chatting. My only real issue is that Superman's cape is flowing from Superman's shoulders over his and Tommy's head from behind. There's no way it could do this without whipping Tommy across the face. Or unless it's really, really, really big. Yeah. I think it's fair just to show the S on the cape. Yeah, probably. I'll give the capage a pass often if the artists take artistic license to make it look cool. But here it just looks a bit awkward. My copy of this has John McRae's signature on it, which is cool. Yeah. This from issue is called from 2009 because it has the button on there. Which seems like such a long time ago. Now. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Because that wasn't that was that big, was a very wasn't first time we went, we went to. Yeah. Uh, the issue's covered dated February 1999 and came out December 23rd, 1998. So we've gone from the beginning of the decade to the end of the decade, mm-hmm. which is quite good. A V.I. Sing was written by the aforementioned Garth Ennis with art by John McCrea and Gary Leach. It was dedicated to Archie Goodwin, who passed away due to cancer a few months prior to the issue being released. Well, did you know that I, from research I found out <laughs> that um, of the I Sing is uh, uh, George Gershwin musical? Is it really? It is. I did not know that. Did you know? I, I thought it was an Irish song. Did you? Yeah, with it being Garth Ennis. Well, yeah. Well, well done coming through with the knowledge there. I was very impressed with you. Thank you, people. <laughs> Tommy Monaghan sits upon a rooftop in Gotham City. A rooftop. Tommy Monaghan sits oh, upon a rooftop. Shall I start this again? Go on, go on. In your own time. In my own time. Tommy Monaghan sits upon a rooftop in Gotham City, smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo. Well, reading Newstime magazine anyway. His jaw drops and his cigarette falls to the floor when he sees Superman just stood on the rooftop taking a minute. After some coaxing, Superman tells Tommy that NASA's first manned mission to Mars, the Jaeger, recently had an engine malfunction causing a meltdown. Superman, on monitor duty on the JLA space station, picked up the distress signal and flew out to help. He learned that the crew are trapped, unable to get into the lifeboat due to radiation flooding the bay, and that their commander, James N. Kennedy, tried to reach it and never came back. Superman tells the crew he'll clear the way to the lander and then hold the core in place on the escape. He does, but just as the crew get to the lander and take off, he notices Commander Kennedy trapped under the sub-flooring but still alive. Superman is about to jettison the core when it blows. Superman, he tells Tommy, let it down. Tommy tells him that that's bunk. Superman can't always live up to the ideal that he represents. That's impossible. What happened to Kennedy was tragic, but the man was an astronaut and knew the risk, and if Superman hadn't been there, they all would have died. Tommy says that Superman represents everything that is great about America. The ability to forget the past, move on from wherever he came from, and embrace his new home. Tommy points to a man, sat in an apartment across the way. That's Figs Kernahan, says Tommy. Runs protection, gambling, and dope across the area, and I see him, and yeah, I figure we have a ways to go. But we got a chance. A chance to start over, improve, maybe even save. And if a chance is all we can hope for, then that ain't so bad. Superman thanks Tommy for his words, and after signing his copy of Newstime, takes off. Tommy can't help but be thrilled by the encounter, and as Superman disappears into the night, Tommy unpacks his high-powered sniper rifle and puts one in the head of Fix. Was that a dark enough synopsis for you? Yeah. 
<laughs> I didn't lighten that one up in any way, did I? No. Okay, fair enough. Um, this story has a wonderful structure to it, in which perhaps to counter the sheer amount of dialogue in the middle section, it starts and ends in near silence. Page one has Tommy leafing through Newstime magazine with Superman on the cover, which was a nice touch, amidst a glorious and gloomy shot of Gotham City. The surprise on his face when his jaw literally drops open is wonderfully conveyed by McCrea. Which is good, because page two, it has to be said, McCrea's depiction of Superman on the splash page is a little off. Yeah. Despite being tall, Superman also looks a little dumpy, and his midsection's not quite central. The boots are also very small. I do like a Superman so lost in thought that he doesn't notice somebody else on the roof, though. I thought that was a nice human touch. Mm. I thought how we drew Superman was a bit of a letdown for a splash page. You not like it? No, I, I don't actually. It seems a bit... I don't know what it is that's off about it, but it doesn't... It's like the cape's too far down on his shoulders at the front, which means the S is burly above his belly button. Well, he looks... Because of the way he's drawn, he looks like the Hulk on Halloween. <laughs> the Hulk dressed as Superman yeah. for Halloween. He doesn't look like... Cootie Cape Man! He doesn't look like Superman, though, just because mm-hmm. of his body build. It was... It was a shame, because that was a bit off... As we said. Uh, page two through three, Tommy is almost a giddy fanboy. Yeah. About meeting Superman, stumbling over his words, swearing to cover his embarrassment, which just leads to further embarrassment when he realises <laughs> that he just swore in front of Superman. He only says friggin', but we know what he's supposed to say, mm. don't we? Superman's reaction is wonderfully deadpan. Mm. Well, there are no women or children present, so you should express yourself as you see fit. Which shows Superman has quite a sly sense of humour. Yeah. The fact that he's smiling when he says it is, is wonderfully done. Well, that was a nice touch, mm. artistically. I, thought it was I like really how good. He's, he's still the Boy Scout Superman while still saying, yeah, you can swear if you want. Yeah, I'm, yeah he's still the Boy Scout, but he's still saying, I'm still a man. Yeah. You can swear if you want to. I'm really not offended <laughs> by some swear words. Um, the middle section of the story... Is fantastic. I like the art, isn't it? Yeah, the artwork is really, really good. It's all blacks, but with a bit of colour in it. Well, McCray was good at blacks. Yeah. Wasn't he? He was exceptionally good at shadow and mood. The page six is where the flashback begins, essentially. It's where all the action is in the issue. It's a wonderful shot of the space shuttle Jaeger. He is supposed to be NASA's first manned mission to Mars. The art in this middle section is simply stunning. Uh, I presume that the Jaeger is named after Major General Charles Elwood Chuck Jaeger, who was a noted Air Force test pilot and the first test pilot to fly faster than sound. Okay. In World War Two, he stationed at uh, in the UK right. at the RAF base in Leeston. My granddad's always been a huge Chuck Jaeger fan. Yeah. From being a kid, I used to know, I knew who Chuck Jaeger was because of my granddad. He was a big fan of Mr. Jaeger. Uh, page 7, McCray's shot here of Superman flying towards the shuttle is breathtaking. Mm. In fact, all the shots of the shuttle with the Earth in the background are simply gorgeous. So he may have he may have slightly boxed the splash page, but that shot of Superman flying makes up for it. is brilliant. It's an absolutely fantastic shot. It's, weird. it's, it's an odd angle, though, then, that you don't see his head. I don't think you need to. No, 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 it's a great shot. I mean, if you saw his head from that angle, his neck would be broke. Yeah. So it makes sense that you don't see it. Pages 8 through 9 is a wonderful little set piece. The shots of Superman holding the radiation chamber in place 
as the astronauts take off show that Superman does sometimes have to strain to get the job done. But the heroism of this is offset by the scene at the top of page 10. Commander Kennedy trapped under the walkway says nothing and we don't even get his thought balloons or reactions. This is all on Superman. It's the facial expression as well. Yeah. That shows everything you need to know really. Yeah. So this is all from Superman's point of view as well. Yeah. This is Superman's interpretation of what just happens the guilt that he's feeling about this guy's death. The commander is probably happy his crew survived. For all Superman knows, what he's thinking there is, yeah, I'm going to die, but you saved everybody else. Yeah, but there's that look of fear on his face. He's just about to die. He's not going to be happy about it. Mm, and Because he, yeah. he knows, though, Superman can't do anything about it. Yeah. He knows, you know, this is it. Which is what makes it quite sad. You're Superman, and you're not going to save me. But he doesn't know that's what he's thinking. He's feeling he's having a bit of Peter Parker guilt that he yeah. wasn't able to save the guy. But it's not coming out of nowhere. You, you read that oh, no. dialogue and look at his face. And yeah, and McRae's art sells it. Mm. So it is. It is really quite an affecting set of pages. Where it's, I mean, essentially, he's once again doing the Superman can't save everybody story. Yeah, but he's doing it very well. Mm. At page 11, again, Ennis shows empathy for the character. Batman isn't even in this issue, and yet the line, Batman mourns quietly, he doesn't let it get in the way, shows that he may have an understanding of that character as well, despite his alleged hatred of all things superhero. Mm. Especially the next line where Superman says, he said something typically grim, which I thought was a great little line. From here on in, the issue is just so replete with great dialogue exchanges. The dialogue, dialogue about smoking is wonderful without being preacher. Where, uh, I guess I don't smoke. Does this bother you, me, me doing this? I, I can put it out. And Superman replies, it doesn't bother me, but I wish you'd see what you're doing to your lungs. It might make you think of quitting. Tommy's reaction to that, you know, I could get it by a truck tomorrow, it really wouldn't matter, would it? Mm. And, it's, and Superman lets him make his own choice. Yeah. He doesn't preach at him. Ever say yes <laughs> to a cigarette? He just, you know, it's well, your choice. For me, it's after Superman's memories that the story actually picks up. I think the memories is only to make sure something happens in the story. Yeah, you've got but, to set up why he's on this roof in Gotham. Yeah, but to me, the the story is what it is because of the the dialogue that comes in the yeah this section of the story. Yeah, yeah, um, it could be overly wordy and isn't. I mean, all of the dialogue's great. So Tommy's reaction to Batman and Superman's monologue on page thirteen is touching without being self pitying and whiny. It's followed on pages 15 and 16 by Tommy's wonderful speech about immigrants and their relationship with their adopted land that should be framed in every port authority in every country in the world. It's great. I'm tempted to do a, a dramatic reading. You're going to do another reading. Should reader. I do a dramatic reading? Go on, then. Let me tell you the problem with America, okay? This could be the greatest place on earth. It really could. You've got all these different people coming to get away from oppression and poverty, all looking for a better life. What do they do? They hang on to all the things that got them into trouble in the first place. They want to go and fight in the same wars and hating the same people they did in the old world. They all want to be Italian or Greek or Irish or Polish or Russian or African or Vietnamese or Cambodian or whatever the hell they are. So they hang on to all of that and they stick to their own kind and everyone stays suspicious of everyone else. And for what? Culture? History? What the hell is that? Bunch of stuff your folks said you had to believe in all your life. Does that make it real? But you, man, you showed them how it's done. 
You're the classic immigrant guy who comes to the States and joins the melting pot. It's like you're saying, okay, I'm from planet Krypton or wherever, but that's all in the past. I'm starting over. I'm American. What can I do to help? That was just a great dialogue exchange. Mm. Um, Ennis, when he's on his game and he's not relying or falling back on the crass humour... Yeah. He is one of the best writers currently working in comics. Well, we've criticised him as well for his lack of understanding of superheroes, but here there is a great deal of understanding for Superman. Yeah, there is a feeling that you get that... Ennis is a big Americana fan. Yeah. I mean, he's ultimately moved to New York, and, Mm. and now he lives there, I think. He's a big fan of American pop culture and what it means to live in that country, and he's a big student of the country. And from reading this and the subsequent follow-up that he did, JLA Hitman, you get the idea that underneath all of it, he has a certain level of respect for Superman because of his place in American culture. Yeah. He's, he did, whether he couldn't care less about the other ones, you get that he likes him because of who he is and what he represents. Mm. And he, he, if he never writes another Superman, he doesn't have to write another because Superman story. He's done this one. I think he said everything he needs to say about the character in this issue. Mm. And he did it exceptionally well. At page 17, Tommy asks Superman for his autograph. Yeah. And Superman's reaction is hysterical, which is, uh, I know, I know, it's, it's for my little girl, right? Mm. <laughs> which is just brilliant. Again, Superman's got a sense of humour. Yeah. Even if he does look like David Boreanaz in that panel. <laughs> well, he has so many different, he looks different in almost every panel. Yeah. To be fair, McCree doesn't do a very good job of keeping his face consistent. Mm. But when the dialogue's so good, I'll, I'll give the art a pass, to be honest with you. Um, I did like, as well, Tommy's reaction. It's not hard to see Tommy being Ennis's avatar in this one. That he genuinely does believe that Superman's okay. Yeah. He may think the others are all tossers. Well, I think he did that quite a bit. Like, Jesse Custer was his avatar mm. in that as well but his line here about um, when Superman flies off and he goes what an unbelievably cool guy that is Ennis yeah. yeah but he then turns around and we get the Ennis gut punch as Tommy puts a bullet through Figs' brain yeah which again was wonderfully Garth wasn't yeah. it it was typically Ennis page 20 Tommy's phone conversation as well is just a little thing but mm. it's very believable and realistic some writers fill these with exposition but the phone dialogue is um, evening tons of fun yeah yeah you two listen it's done yeah meet me out front we'll pick up the five thou on the way to Noonan's drinks are on me yeah yeah we can stop at Bucket Burger we better in case you waste away to nothing what at least I can still see mine and hey you're never going to believe who I run into tonight which is just great. I mean... It's we, just a conversation. Yeah, and at least I can still see mine. You know what he's referring to. It's another Ennis. Yes. So, it was, it was really, really good. Mm. Um, page 21 and 22, the shots of Superman flying away leading to the final splash is excellent as he speeds off into the night with the shot of Americana below him. Which I just thought was great. Considering Ennis's lack of empathy... An outright dislike of superheroes. He nails the character of Superman in this story, and I dare say, it's, he may have a modicum of respect for him. 
the ending where Superman represents what we can be and Tommy what we are is well handled by Ennis who neither preaches nor pontificates about the characters or the place in the world. Tommy acts like a giddy schoolboy throughout the entire issue and Tommy's relationship with Superman would be expanded upon in the JLA Hitman miniseries down the road with Tommy normally deeply disrespectful of superheroes just enamoured with the Man of Steel. And this is a lovely little tale that deals with the legend and myth of Superman and how the man deals with being super. Perhaps because it's only one tale, perhaps because Ennis has said that of all the superheroes, he does have a certain respect for Superman, not only as the first, but also his place in American folklore. Perhaps simply because, for once, Ennis treats a superhero character with some respect and doesn't have some no-mark throwing up all over the boots. This story stands out in the Hitman run and does perhaps deserve its rep as a truly great Superman story. Did you like that one? I, I did. But, like I said, I think I only like this because of the last half of it, really. I like all of it. You can't have the last half without the first half. No, I think the last half is the, the best. Yeah, well, the last half is the crux of the story. Yeah. But you need to get though. You need to earn that. You can't just have him show up on the rooftop and Tommy start preaching at him. <laughs> Because so then you just like, why yeah, are you preaching? Yeah, so you've got to earn the heavy dialogue in the end of it. Next time! Oh, again, references, dude! Yeah. I keep forgetting to do that, because we don't look good, do we? Nope. <laughs> uh, references this week, Superman vs. Hollywood by Jake Rosson. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at www.dcindexes.com and www.burnrobotics.com Frequently Asked Questions. What did you use Burn for this week? Uh, the stuff at the beginning about why he quit the Superman books oh, right. was all from the, the same frequently asked questions uh, next time Superman enters the new millennium with another quartet of super tales from the decade that seems to have no identity from Action Comics 765 dated May 2000 a clown comes to Metropolis from Action 775 dated March 2001 what's so funny about truth justice and the American way from Superman 183 dated August 2002 The Secret Part 2 and from All Star Superman issue 4 dated July 2006 The Superman Olsen War we hope you'll be here for our pen ultimate happy birthday Superman. Good night. Goodbye.
which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they have discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website, www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name, and comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>